This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, January the 2nd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program with this new introduction to the show to kick off the new year. How about that? All right, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air to discuss whatever's on your mind is uh, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long-distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. All right, well, obviously, Happy New Year to you. Thanks for tuning into the program this morning. Hopefully, you had the opportunity to decompress and recharge over the holiday season. I know that's not the case for all, many people working throughout the entirety of the holidays, but hopefully you had a chance to spend some time with your family and friends. And you know one thing, it's the middle days. It's between Christmas and New Year's, a chance to really shut it down, which I did. So I tried to be in tune and I tried to keep up with the news of the day, but I didn't do a whole lot of news watching and or reading over the holidays. A little bit of cramming yesterday, like I was cramming for an exam. But anyway, you know me. We can talk about whatever's on your mind. And for those of you out there who are the folks who make the New Year's resolutions, good luck. I don't take it on. I used to years ago. Miserable failure year in and year out. So I haven't done it in years past, but maybe just a renewed focus on my health. Maybe that would be the focus for many of you listening to the program. And, you know, I struggle with, you know, looking back too much versus looking forward. So we'll do a combination of that today. You know, pick up on some where the news stories left off last year and where we think they're heading in this calendar year. So let's do it. Big part of the holidays for minor hockey fans. Dave, do I sound crackly coming over the air because my head's that sounds awful. Okay, so for many of us uh, hockey fans just watching the World Juniors, I gotta say, I'm really not that high on this year's team. You know, we've got some talent, no question, but we look a little bit erratic and kind of running around a lot. The quarterfinals are today, and we are involved with Czechia. We play them about 10 o'clock this morning, puck drop, I think, 10 past, so you can turn it on in the background while you listen to the show. So it used to be there were Czechoslovakia, then the Czech Republic, and now they're Czechia. Well, let's just say Canada plays the Czechs this morning. And hopefully we've got another gear to hit because it's been a bit of a lackluster performance thus far. A bit of a coming out party for 17-year-old Macklin Celebrini. He looks good. He's got the tools. And unfortunately, part of the international hockey conversation over the Christmas break was H&L's decision regarding banning the post-game handshake for the under-11s through the under-18s on the boys' side. It's kind of, you know, deflating to hear it being discussed the way it was. But anyway, so be it. Uh, Dawson Mercer hot after the Christmas break for his New Jersey Devils. Two games, four points, including his first ever career three-point night. So congratulations to Mercer. Keep it up. All right. Exciting day yesterday for female hockey players, female hockey fans, young minor hockey girls right across the country. It was the inaugural game of the inaugural season of the Women's Professional Hockey League. Now, you'll hear lots of people pushing back that they don't appreciate the caliber, the speed, the women's game period, whatever. If you don't like it, don't watch it. You know, I do think it'd be helpful if they had monikers on the team names as opposed to simply Toronto versus New York. I tuned in for a bit yesterday, and I have to say I was really quite proud to hear Maggie Connors introduced. You know, after a standout five-year uh, career at the NCAA playing for Princeton of all schools and Ivy League uh, education along with her hockey career so now she's playing for Toronto and she looked good she has got the wheels I mean Toronto got shut off for nothing but despite that Maggie Connors player of the game 
pretty cool stuff. So congratulations. Good start for her individually, not so much for the team. And I heard Brian in the newscast mention that the puck drop was head by Jenna Heffert, who's one of the Canadian all-time standout hockey players, and icon, sporting and tennis icon, Billie Jean King, who was also in the Toronto dressing room to read off the starting five. So, you know, pretty cool experience to be, you know, a, a, around Billie Jean King and the caliber of athlete that she was and the organizer that she remained. So, anyway, congratulations, Maggie. If you want to comment on any of those sporting-related matters, you know what to do. A couple of quick hockey notes or sports notes before we get going. On this date, 1986, one of my faves, certainly one of my late father's absolute favorite hockey players, New York Islanders right winger Mike Bossy scored his 49th, or 499th, and 500 career goals in the final 2 minutes and 22 seconds to lift his Islanders to a 7-5 victory over the Boston Bruins. He became the 11th player in NHL history to score 500 goals. Ended his illustrious 10-year career with 573, scored 50-plus goals in every single season except for his final, where he scored 38, I believe, in only 63 games. And his football season, Dave's been football fan heading towards the NFL playoffs and of course the college bowl season almost over the national championship is uh, scheduled for next Monday number one Michigan against number two Washington but it was on this date in 1966 that the National Football League championship at Lambeau Field Green Bay the Packers beat the, Cle- the Cleveland Browns 23-12 it was the first NFL game televised in color and it was the last one played before the Super Bowl era and now we get into more stuff Make of these numbers what you will, and this is an annual rite of passage for media outlets as they examine the gap between the rich and the poor, the disparity between the CEO and their employees. Look, CEOs are always going to make an extraordinary amount of money, more than the folks working for them, and you can make your arguments about who works the hardest and all the rest of it, but this is the annual one. So in one workday, less than half hour into the new year, 27 minutes to be exact, Canada's 100 highest paid CEOs will have already earned the average worker's annual salary. You know, that is kind of frustrating. But here's where I think it makes good conversation. Now, so for the average top-paid CEOs in the country, they make about 246 times more what the average worker makes. That breaks last year's record of 243 times. So they got paid on an average almost $15 million in 2022. That broke the record of 14.3 in 2021. But here's where it gets interesting and where we talk about my purchase power and how it's been falling behind, given all the cost of living issues, inflation, food inflation, and other impacts. So for the CEOs, in large part, their end-of-the-year salary will be mostly made up of bonuses based on revenues and profits. And when inflation where it is, of course, we've seen a skyrocket in revenue and for some companies' profits. And consequently, their bonuses have been absolutely massive. So, you know, it's not that hate the rich stuff or eat the rich kind of stuff. It's just how many people out there actually have bonuses that are tied directly to inflation and will be paid out commensurate to inflationary pressures, but not so much for me you, the vast majority of people listening to this program, our purchasing power is down. Our debt servicing numbers are up. So anyway, that's the annual talk about the CEOs. And good for them, I suppose. All right. So the K-12 system got a few emails. Now, I will say via email or regarding email. I haven't opened a single email since Friday, December 22nd at 12 o'clock. So if you sent me something and I haven't replied, I tried to dig in as much as I could this morning. If you really need me to see an email that you sent over the holidays, please just resend it because there's hundreds upon hundreds there. So some concern parents with just how quickly the children are back to school in the public K-12 system, and that's today, the second. I don't know what the right number is. For some of the parents that wrote me, they were concerned that it's just a very quick turnaround from New Year's Day to right back in the saddle. 
So between that and some of the stories we were talking about in the 2023 portion of the school year, I would like to hear more from the provincial government and a bit more of a concerned reaction and a roadmap forward to deal with well the decline in math, science and reading scores. You know, to tell me there's a transformation coming is one thing. The trend since 2003 is glaring. We are struggling specifically in mathematics in this province, so we can pick up on that. I've never heard a whole lot from any government department, most importantly the Department of Education, regarding the issue regarding uh, chronic absenteeism, which is a massive one. And here Here's where it gets much more concerning for most, is the prevalence of violence in schools. Now, the province will say that there was a school-related symposium not so long ago, and violence wasn't even on the agenda, and so consequently didn't get much attention. They don't point to the fact that there looks like there's a major increase in the, pre- the amount of violence in schools, but the severity and the stories that we're all hearing are really quite troubling. So whether it be student on student, and some of the now renewed focus on student on teacher violence. The one news story I read this morning regarding well-known music educator and musician Rosemary Lawton, who's a music teacher, she was finishing her master's at Memorial University and did her thesis on exactly that. So when she went out to the music teacher uh, group here in the province, some 49% of respondents said they'd be on the receiving end of a violent act and or taunting and or cyberbullying. So we know the consequences amongst our youth with the want to lash out and whatever the root causes may be. There's been lots of documented research in the recent past regarding things like social media and screen time and the lack of socialization and maybe the erosion of social skills. But it looks like and sounds like it's maybe worse than we thought it was. So she's talking about, you know, someone getting clobbered with a big xylophone and the need to be able to have proper storage to lock the, uh, mu- the musical instruments away. But anything inside the K-12 world, whether it be the timing of returning to school and or the aforementioned issues, there's always a lot to it, and we're happy to take that on here today. They're not going back to class out in Mons Grenfell's, uh, Mons Grenfell campus. Some issue regarding a cybersecurity incident. So they were supposed to be back in school Thursday, but now it's going to be rescheduled to Monday. No real detail about exactly what happened. And we're familiar with the lack of detail when it comes to cyber security incidents and or cyber attacks. Curiously, I was reading a story in Bloomberg this morning about the US Congress and so many uh, different states that are dealing with cyber security related matters at water treatment facilities. You know, in my personal opinion, I think cyber and cyber protection should be part of defense spending because that's where a lot of the so-called digital warfare takes place. So online courses remain as normal for the students out at Mons Grenfell campus. The, you know, they say they've enacted all the security protocols, no mention of any specific details moving forward, but they're not going back until Monday, and I guess more information possibly coming. And on that front, there's been a proposed class action lawsuit filed here provincially by Buckingham and Eli Baker, have two uh, people they're representing, but hoping that it becomes a class. This was inevitable. So when this attack happened, and we knew very, very little about it, so it was in the fall of 2021, I believe September month, so well in excess of 100,000 people in the province have been impacted, whether it be with your personal medical information and or for employees, all the other information attached to their files. We don't know whether or not there was a ransom paid, you know, the hacker group Hive who are infiltrating our systems, but where there's possibility for traction on this legal front is that very clearly in some consequent reports, including from the province's privacy commissioner, Michael Harvey, apparently the red flags and the warnings were in place and we did not take the required effort to ensure the protection of our personal information. 
So who knows what's going to become of this filing inside the courts, but we know that the proposal for significant damages is part of it. No number has been attached to that. But I think cyber-related matters, whether it be the impact on you as an individual or you as a company, you as a government, a healthcare system, water treatment facility, and up and down the line, cyber is going to be a big part of our concerns going forward. It just really stands to reason, seeing the frequency of these attacks on cybersecurity networks. So Mr. Buckingham, Mr. Baker have proposed a potential class action on that front. All right, looking back. We know the concerns many people have had and the questions being asked about the four companies plus Pattern Energy at the Port of Argentia with the wind to hydrogen ammonia for export. This is all going to be about final investment decisions made based on access to the federal subsidy in the form of a tax credit. This is a big conversation. So, you know, whether you're all in or all out or still maybe have questions or concerns regarding these, these proposals, this will be the crux of the matter. And we've heard this from many of the organizations that have moved forward with their proposals, including, notably, John Risley at World Energy GH2. The concern for Mr. Risley and others will be, now you can talk about environmental matters, what have you, and the export market and the business model associated with it, fair. But it's how you define green hydrogen. Because there's green hydrogen, blue hydrogen, brown hydrogen, yellow hydrogen, turquoise hydrogen, pink hydrogen. So what constitutes green? Mr. Rizzi's concern regarding these federal tax credits, a range of 15% to 40%, which equals billions of dollars in savings for the proponents, is how we evaluate who gets the maximum tax credit. You know, referring to the adulterated business models. He's not wrong, I suppose, if we're going to attend to what actually constitutes green, and it all relies on the integration with our own provincial grid, or whether it be Nova Scotia and their provincial grid. Because for the most part, when they are using power from our grid, we still don't know how much or how much they'll pay for it, a variety of the moving parts that still have blanks that have to be filled in, is the vast majority of that will come from hydro. And so consequently, it will be green versus in the province of Nova Scotia, for instance, where when the proponents are interacting with their provincial grid, 51% of the power in that province comes from coal fire generation or coke fire generation. So a vastly different issue. So it's not necessarily my concern. We'll just add it to the pile about how these will be evaluated. This is where I think it's important for the federal government to put a definition forward. Because we're simply going to have wranglings and governments who are anxious to get some of these projects off the ground and the jobs created and the revenue coming into the coffers, if we don't have real firm definitions, we're not going to see industry created, which will be, you know, eliminating some measure of emissions versus simply trying to come up with an end product for sale for profit. Nothing wrong with profit. That's why they're doing it. Not out of the goodness of their heart. But that's an important and interesting conversation. On the northeastern United States, where there's been projects proposed and gone by the wayside, projects proposed without some of these firm understandings of the Inflation Reduction Act in the states and tax credits and consequently definitions regarding what is green. So unless this industry gets really strict definitions, it's not going to be the green that people think and talk about. It just won't be. Because if I'm able to get 25% tax credit, but at certain points of the time, uh, during the summer, for instance, I'm accessing power that's generated by coal, 
then I'm not so sure how green that will be. You can call it green at the end because you have indeed used some renewables, but it's a, certainly a massive conversation. There's lots of changes coming in 2024 regarding taxation, tax credits, uh, CPP contributions. We can pick away at those because it's... You know, something that I think we'll all have to need, need to be aware of, maybe to make your own little financial moves if you actually have any money to do some of these things with, like your tax-free savings account. So we'll try to pick away at those, but there's lots of them. Also, when you know, we'll talk onshore wind, looking forward, I would imagine there will be final decisions made on the onshore file, but also with the offshore file. And curiously, in year in review, I heard the Premier speaking about implications of 2041 and negotiations with the province of Quebec and Hydro-Quebec. You have to believe we'll understand a lot more. It'll come much clearer. Maybe final decisions will be made this calendar year. I would think so. So we'll look at those particular related matters. And also, the Premier mentioning specifically, if we're talking about greening up the grid, what where Gull Island plays a role. So we don't hear a whole lot about that project, potential project in this province. In the province of Quebec, they talk about it all the time. But the, pro- the Premier did indeed make specific mention of Gull Island this morning. And curiously, it was on this date, I think in 1929, that the United States and Canada agreed to preserve Niagara Falls. If there was hydro d- uh, generated in full at, hydro, at, pardon me, at uh, Niagara Falls, there is a place called Horseshoe Falls where they generate some power for western New York and southern Ontario. But if you harness the entirety of Niagara Falls, I'm not suggesting we should, but just for context, you could generate 4.9 million kilowatts, enough to power 3.8 million homes. So, Anyway, just for a tidbit of info. All right, there's so much to discuss. You know, whether you want to bring forward the conversation on homelessness or transportation or health care, you know us. The conversation and the topics are entirely up to you. The table has been set for the Conception Bay East Bell Island by election. There's also many people wondering aloud whether or not there will be a general election at some point in 2024, both provincially and federally. But on the ballot at this moment in time, the PCs are running Tina Neri, the NDP are running Kimberly Churchill, and of course the Liberals running Fred Hutton. Whether or not there is a bigger category of win or lose or importance, of course all three parties want to win a seat, I mean it goes without saying. But if you want to put uh, any more context to what you think the big deal is inside that by-election, been a PC stronghold for some 20 years. So we'll see how that plays out. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline.vocm.com. When we come back, let's kick off the show and the year with a great start. That means you're in the queue to talk about whatever's, whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Good morning, William. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you today, Paddy? Not too bad, I suppose. How you doing? I'm good, Paddy. Paddy, I was sitting down the other night, me and the boys, watching the hockey game, the juniors, and it came up to buy your 50-50 ticket. We went in to select the 50-50 ticket from the province that was available. It says Newfoundland is there, part of it. And at the bottom of it, it states that it's not eligible in your province. Now, Paddy, as far as I know, Newfoundland's part of Canada. It is. You know what? I could be wrong. I could be wrong. No, you're right. We are, since 1949. Now, I went to buy a 50-50 ticket as well, to be honest with you, William. And when I got to the page to buy, right off the bat, it says it's only open to fans, and I believe it was New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Ontario, and Alberta. So the bulk of the country is excluded. Yes, okay. So why is that happening? No earthly idea. 
silly. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, the Hockey League Association or whatever the case may be, why are they able to distinguish what provinces buy tickets and what ones don't if we're all part of Canada? As a, as a Canadian in Newfoundland and a hockey lover, why shouldn't I be able to purchase a ticket to be able to, to win the 50-50 draw? That's discrimination, Patty. Right off the bat, it's discrimination. Well, I mean, just BC, Alberta, BC, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Quebec, PEI, yes. none of them are allowed to buy a ticket, which I, I don't understand. I wouldn't know why that would be. And there was three different 50-50s. One was drawn, I think, on the 27th. One okay. ran until yesterday, and I think the last one runs until the 6th, all yes. Christmas Day. But, yeah, I couldn't buy a ticket either. No idea no. why. Uh, what I don't understand is, okay, uh, even big corporations, places like the Hockey League and all that, they still have to turn around and they have to buy a license to buy tickets, right? To, to uh, yeah. get out tickets, right? That's right. Okay. So when they buy that license, okay, off the province, uh, is it each province that they're buying the license or is it an overall license for Canada? You know what I mean? Like, or is it individuals, you know? So did they skip these provinces and said, what the hell, we got majority of populations in these provinces, so we'll only sell them to them? When Hockey Canada does it, they would need agreements with provincial governments through, like in this province, a service NL to get lotto licenses, but that would be the least of anybody's worries. That's yes, a exactly. fairly fundamental process. Yes, exactly. You know what I mean? So I don't really understand why that Newfoundland and BC and Manitoba were all excluded from, and, and we got hockey players in the NHL. These hockey players that we have in NHL, okay, at the present time, they once were juniors. Well, both of them played World Junior. Mercer played twice, Nook played once. Exactly. Yeah. You know what I mean? So we supported all them, you know, and we'll continue to support. I do well, know a staffer. Allowed, we're not allowed to participate. I get it. I, I know a staffer at Hockey Canada. I'll just zip him a note and see if there's an actual legitimate explanation as to why that's the case. But I noticed the exact same thing. I went to buy one the other night. No luck. Yeah, it uh, it don't it just don't sit me right. Uh, a lot of us that uh, we were there that night watching the game, and tonight we're going to be watching it again at ten o'clock this morning, actually. So, William, before I have to take another call, what do you make of the team? They don't look that great to me. No, don't no. They're uh, they're a little bit lacking, but it, it all comes with experience. You know, there a lot of them are sixteen, seventeen year old. Yeah, we got the 117 role, and he's our top scorer, Celebrini. So we'll see Matt Savoy is back in the lineup today, which is uh, very helpful. Yes. So we'll see how it goes. And uh, good luck and enjoy watching the game, and I appreciate the time, William. Yes, Paddy, and could you please get into it uh, with whoever that you said you were going to talk to? Yeah. See if we get some explanation. It'd I'll, be great. I'll zip my note. Okay, Patty. Thanks, thank you. Have a great day. You too, buddy. All the best. Uh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Right. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's keep going. Coincidentally, another hockey chat. Say good morning to a former referee who I've played many games while he was calling them. There's Billy Abbott showing us on three. Good morning, Bill. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show, Bill. Oh, thanks. Yeah, so over Christmas, it's, uh, I guess the controversy about uh, the minor hockey and the shaking hands, uh, I ran into a lot of former coaches and players over Christmas and said they should weigh in on this because it says you have a lot of experience. I'll just give you a little bit of history of uh, a referee for 30 years from uh, from minor hockey right up to Olympic hockey and it happened to me one time in 30 years where somebody threw a punch in a uh, uh, game-ending shake hands. 
And I refereed over 2,500 games. I probably saw another 2,500, and I saw that happen maybe three or four times. And maybe it happened a few times over 30 years. But uh, there were two things back then. Uh, uh, Over the years in the 70s and 80s, when hockey was really intense, you had intense senior hockey, junior hockey, Avalon East hockey, Southern Shore hockey, and very rarely did you have uh, anybody... uh, you know, throw a punch, shaking hands. Uh, and I credit that to the quality of coaches that uh, coached, you know, while I refereed. They were all former players. They had uh, respect for the game. And they taught their players the rights and, and wrongs. Uh, I haven't seen much hockey in the last 20 years since I retired. But it, it seems like... Uh, uh, I, I just don't think that the quality of coaching is there. Now, that's one side of it. Uh, from the other side, there's, there's a proactive way to handle this and a reactive thing. Proactive would be, you know, to minor hockey associations where it seems like the problem is stemming from is to do a better screening for from the coaches. Uh, uh, if the situation does arise, uh, the rule is in the book now that anybody that uh, acts up during or after a game in this situation that is assessed an automatic gross misconduct, which carries used to carry a minimum of a two-game suspension, and uh, the, the incident will be ruled on by the president of Hockey Newfoundland and Labrador, who could assess further penalties. Yep. Uh, so that would nip it in the bud. And if it happened a second time, you throw the player out. Now, but now, to add to that, I think that if the situation arose where the player got suspended, then the coach could, could also, should also be suspended. Similar to like Major League Baseball, if a pitcher uh, throws at a batter, he is automatically ejected from the game, and the manager is automatically ejected from the game. So you don't see it happen very often. No, you don't. Look, I mean, I think you make a good point regarding the coaches as well. So, look, this is no criticism, undue criticism layered at the volunteer coaches in minor hockey. But, you know, even in some of the teams that I'm familiar with, you don't necessarily see a lot of former players as coaches. And again, good on the hockey dads or the hockey moms that want to be involved and put their name forward to be a coach or a manager of the team. God bless you, because we certainly need it. So I don't know if we do enough to give the required tutelage to coaches. We focus in on things like, you know, the fair play scheme with how many minutes kids should be playing and who can play in the last minutes of periods and power plays and that kind of stuff. We give them some help regarding how to uh, conduct a real hockey practice and those types of things. But we also also make them do things you know regarding fair play and rules inside the dressing room but there should be a really carefully crafted message that every single minor hockey coach in the province has is obliged to relay to their players regarding the post-game handshake you know because I think you're right if the players get out of hand then I think the coaches should be taking the task as well I know that sounds harsh given the fact we're talking about you know moms or dads who are volunteering their time but if we want to avoid this and avoid the black eye that comes with it because hockey already gets a bit of an unfair uh, 
bad reputation in many fronts when in fact many minor sports are every bit as bad whatever bad means for when compared to minor hockey so I don't know if they're going to reevaluate this I know Gonzo Bennett who is a terrific hockey volunteer has fallen on his sword Dr. Jared Butler the president of HNL has spoke to it with us here on VOCM but it really feels like a knee-jerk reaction you're always going to have the possibility for you know bad words to be exchanged or a couple of expletives and or maybe a shove or a an extra long hard extended grip on someone's hand but let's just get back to reality here it's a life lesson learning type of thing you know it's not just about you know the winning and the losing because part of minor sports is learning how to win with grace and lose with grace and how to take losing as motivation as opposed to flipping out in a, in a shake handshake line i don't know if you remember much of me as a player but i got in plenty of tilts and that kind of stuff but never after the game so no I, and, and that and that's one of the things that you just hit it right on the head i mean it, it's great to show kids how to skate and how to pass you know and and, and how to you know be a uh, you know a good hockey player but uh we've all heard about the value of sport both for boys and girls about teaching them teamwork how to share with you with your comrades how to respect your opponents you know, and, and this is the whole root of, of, of what sport is all about. And, uh, you know, and, you know, I, I think, you know, now coming up in, in a couple of months, uh, minor hockey has its showcase every year. It's provincial minor hockey tournaments are probably 40 or 50 on the go. And I, and I think, you know, uh, they should revisit this. And what a way to, you know, to open up their minor hockey with, you know, enforcing the rules. Uh, uh, you know, come down hard on the perpetrators. And and showcase minor hockey for what it is, you know, uh, uh, you know, just a, just a true, you know, love of the sport at, at ages, you know, we say, you know, ten to eighteen. Yeah, I, I I think they missed the mark here. I know what they're trying to achieve, and they do admit that communication sometimes between minor sports organizations like HNL with the, the general public and the players and coaches and the uh, different associations that sometimes comes up a little bit short. But let's hope that cooler heads prevail. I think this would have been better handled at the AGM, you know, where you could table it for some discussion, then take it to a vote. Everyone will have an idea of why they were even discussing it in the first place as opposed to how they arrived at this decision. So, anyway, I hate to come down too hard on folks like Jared Butler and others, but, you know, this one here, I think, kind of misses part of the important messages inside of sport because you're playing for the name on the front of the jersey, not the one on the back. And that yeah, kind of stuff. and it was, it was, you know, like it, it, it was a reaction to, you know, and, and I know what happens and you don't like to see it happen, but, I, you know, I, I wonder, you know, how, you know, how prevalent was it? How many incidents do they have, you know, uh, um, you know where they could, you know, like you say, bring. Uh, this is a, pro- a province-wide issue, and at the annual meeting, it would be the perfect time. And bring in a couple of experts, for example, to give them their opinions on how to handle this in a, you know, in a, in a better light. I think. Bill's good to have you on the show. I hope you're doing well. Oh, doing doing great, bud. Doing great, and it was, it was a pleasure to talk to you. It's my pleasure, Billy. You take good care. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Bill Abbott, long-time referee. I think he said during that conversation he refereed over 2,500 games. Great stuff. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Bill. You're on the air. 
Line one, you're on the air. Yeah, no, no, I know. That's just the pole made around, muck around. Happy New Year to you, boy. Happy New Year to you as well. Did you have a good one? I had a very quiet holiday season, which is exactly what the doctor ordered. How about yourself? <laughs> I agree with that, buddy. Uh, just, no, I'm just calling to wish you a Happy New Year and uh, just to uh, drop a little uh, uh, ideas at uh, people. Uh, uh, specifically, uh, municipally, uh, 2024 is a, a municipal election year, and uh, I think people should pay attention to that. But I, again, starting off the new year. Uh, oh, and I did hear, in your preamble, Patty, I heard you talk about the uh, the, uh, the new tax rules, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, there's lots coming. And I, I, I will break some of them down here today because there's taxation increases coming, the second layer or level of what they call for CPP, GST, HST, exemptions for counseling and therapy and the like. So there's a lot that we should inform people of. And, you know, there's changes coming to uh, tax deductions regarding short-term rentals. There's a deadline approaching here in the province for short-term rental owners to register with the province for the ability to be able to advertise on Verbo or Airbnb or what have you. So there's a lot that we need to get to. I, I agree with you 100, percent and uh, and I I, I, I I cut that one uh, a bit, but uh, I'm actually saying on your open airwaves, uh, the the, uh, the the people that uh, that that jack from our uh, incomes, will uh, be watching just as just just as scrupulously going, okay, they're paying attention to that. We got to we got to do that. We got to change that. Yeah, there's GST issues regarding housing and what have you. So, yes, there's a ton of different stuff coming here. Uh, especially important, I think, for people who are employers or employees is the changes to CPP uh, contributions. So there's a lot to that, some pretty significant changes coming for individuals. You know, and, of course, paying into CPP, which is an important way to save for your retirement, and it's an indexed uh, investment. So there's a lot of good and upside to CPP. But talking about long-term viability and hitting some of those targets where they're trying to increase CPP, CPP benefits for seniors in the coming years, so that's why we're going to see an increase for our contributions. Yeah, and I advise everybody to pay just a little more attention to to it because uh, it's it's the only way to get ahead. Follow, and that's that's my final part of my message is uh, for the, for the New Year's. Uh, uh, I, whatever place I ever enter, I automatically assume I'm the least intelligent person there. But I got a lot of homework done and. I just people. Uh, uh, I know the uh, what was called the, um, the, the, uh, the regionalization uh, uh, is the thing that put it back on the back burner because little individual communities and whatnot done it and uh, uh, fought it because uh, they, they they just listened to what they're told without doing their own homework. Yeah, well, it got off on the wrong foot. I mean, when the local service districts were not represented inside the working groups, they, of course, felt like, well, if we're going to leave us on the outside looking in, then we're just not going to play along. Consequently, something that was being discussed for a decade plus is now gone. And the problem says they won't pursue any regionalization any further. They did amend the legislation oh, they, they, associated they, they, they with... Yeah, they're giving up on it. So they simply made the amendment, you know, to do away with some different layers of bureaucracy, eliminate poll taxes, offer the 
ability for municipalities to offer to incentivize corporations or businesses coming to town, the ability to charge a corporate tax up to their individual municipalities, how they want to do that. We have heard examples of different municipalities working together, whether it be on climate change related matters and or uh, regional investment opportunities like up on the Great Northern Peninsula, you know, between Anglee and Conch and Rattleton by Arm. I can't remember the other community uh, off the top of my head. They're doing things like that. And there's I think that municipal legislation looks sound from where I sit, but I'm not a municipal leader. And we're speaking with Bill Murphy, who is a councillor out in Long Harbour. You know, for folks who look to their council for most of the issues we deal with on a day-to-day basis, and yet we've had elections in the years past, municipal elections, where some communities didn't even have enough candidates to fill out these chairs around the council table. So we know it could be a thankless job. For many people, it would be a volunteer job, but we really do need people to get engaged. If you want to be a champion for your community, there's an opportunity to run in a municipal election. Let's hope they do exactly that this year. Uh, anything else um, quick before we take another yeah, call, Bill? I'll, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll clue it up with exactly that because you, you, you went there uh, and you said many of the volunteer role and so many places with little access to stuff, it's it's much... Uh, the, uh, there's there's the largest budget in the na- per capita in the nation right here, and uh, I, the, there is room. These little coves and bays of this big, beautiful island is why I settle in this little tiny place because I like it. I like the freedom. I like my peace and quiet. And we just fortunate enough. I, uh, I won't go too far into that, but uh, it's, it's, there's people should start paying attention. Put your, ask, put your put your head in there, and we uh, these little toes and bays. Uh, you know, all these people, the important people into uh, the the, uh, the urbanite areas. Man, uh, uh, ten years ago, I saw growing this little place five six hundred and uh, there's people here who say yeah you could 10 years ago i could and i bet you any money in four years we could up at a hundred in this little community and work with the next communities along where uh, we have the good fortune of the, uh, a big industry that uh, it contributes highly to the tax coffers but uh, bottom line is pay attention people and happy new year i wish everybody the best same to you bill all the best take care oh christmas oh the Patty? pardon me uh, all Christmas Day? The 6th of January, yeah. Yeah, uh, grand opening for a convenience store to light have a few gift certificates, uh, some prizes, shameless plug. Fair enough. Uh, thanks for the call this morning. Take good care. Back at you, buddy. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number two. Mike, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Listen, I was on last week for the man again today, sir. I... Uh, looked on the news in Newfoundland and he made this announcement they're going to put out a, a hundreds of thousands of dollars for an exploratory for the White Hills for to build a HM penitentiary we've been doing that for 20 years Patty so immediately any death no matter if it's suicide sal, whatever happens in HM penitentiary the government makes big announcements emergency exploratory new prison being built soon as I heard it I quit my job I got $25,000 in my savings me and my brother Harold now are down in front of HM Penitentiary, and I'm not leaving this time, Patty. I need to see the government. I need to see the warden. I need. To, we need something to sit down and have a communication, because like I told you on the last broadcast, it's going to cost us $750 million to build that prison. We haven't got it. Newfoundland ain't going to... 
get gas prices raised, food prices raised, tax property taxes raised. Newfoundlanders can live now. So, Pat, Patty, I'm a little bit nervous, and thanks for taking me, Carl, but I'm letting everybody know I'm in front of the prison. I got VOCM news coming down. I'm not going to leave. I'm going to be here every day, seven days a week, 15 hours a day, until we sit down in a peaceful way and has an open, frank discussion and bring it to the people of Newfoundland. I'm in, the, I'm in the city driving around, Paddy. The dark underbelly of this city with the drug addiction and the mental illness and the, and the gang violence is unprecedented. I've never seen it in my life, and I want to do something about it. We need an emergency meeting, Paddy. There's uh, victims being out on the road. There's, there's, there's a big body now being investigated. I can't say much on open line, but when it comes out into the news, it's going to be a horrific... So we need the police involved. We need government involved. We need the ministers involved. We need the politicians. Elections are coming up. You can't feed this to the Newfoundlanders when we have so much addiction. I seen a young girl last night, 17 years old, downtown Water Street. I went in to buy some pizza to get some food. I come out and she said, sir, would you like to have sex? I said, ma'am, I said, what are you asking me for sex for? She said, I'm, I'm looking for money. I said, here's $50. She started crying to me and I hugged her. I said, you're made in the image of Jesus. And God don't make garbage. She said, you're the first man that I never had to perform sex with to get money. And she said, you put a blessing on me, and I'd like to thank you for that. So thanks for taking me, Kyle, but I'm letting you know and your listeners, the government, the politicians, I'm not going nowhere. They're all thinking I'm crazy. I'm not crazy. There's prison in there. There's staff out here that are doing the right thing, and they're working in conditions that is moldy, ratted, unsafe. Dignify the staff of Newfoundland and the HM Penitentiary Badge and Correction Service of Canada. It's a bad sword to our country. It's a bad sword to our land. And we can't keep feeding this to our people when our land is addicted and there's a dark shadow over our land. We need to bring the light. We need to have an open, discussed conversation. Thank you. Welcome, and we need to bring it. They're violent criminals, sir. They're not, there's no justice. They're not even being put in prison. They're being released out on bail because the prison is that bad. Is that fear to the taxpayers of our community? Is that fear to our children that are going to the schools that are seeing this addiction? Mikey, you take care. I appreciate the time. Good luck. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, you know, we talk about looking back and looking forward. We assume, well, that's probably poor choice of words. You wonder if there will be any forward momentum on a replacement for the penitentiary. I think this is fairly accurate to say, and I think this has been the case for successive governments, is that there's not a whole lot of votes to be won with building a new penitentiary. You've all heard the stories uh, about what the conditions are like, and Mike makes an important point. There are people being released maybe sooner than they would normally be because of the conditions. There are people who have been granted more time, credits for time served because of the conditions. You know, time and a half is now double time for many. So when we talk about the overall issue regarding public safety, this is important. So in the form of looking back regarding Her Majesty's, is now we have found out that based on the uh, the 10 correctional officers that were charged in their role in the death of Jonathan Henock back in 20, what was that, 2021 or 2019. The case was dismissed in 2021. The justice in the case, Pamela Goulding, was really quite harsh with the Crown, saying they didn't bring forward anything that would elucidate their theory about the correctional officer's role. Three of them were charged with manslaughter. The province paid over $1 million in legal bills in that particular case. So then the CEOs actually sued the provincial government, talked about all kinds of things, anguish and suffering, mental pain, loss of enjoyment of life, a reputation that was smeared, defamation, ma- mal- what is the proper word here? Ma- 
malicious prosecution and a variety of things. So that was a $1 million bill brought forward in the issue regarding Mr. Henock, his death at HMP. That case never made it to trial, first nor last. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Tom Davis. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Happy New Year to you, David, and the listeners. The very same to you. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, last time we spoke, we were talking about the city of St. John's budget, and little did I know that the same day uh, Councillor Froud was going to resign as of Friday. So I spent Christmas consulting and considering whether or not I would put myself forward and I want to officially announce that I'm going to be uh, running for the uh, residents of Ward 4 in the city of St. John's uh, in the upcoming by-election. I can't say I'm surprised, to be honest with you. So what puts your candidacy uh, in place? Is it a real concern simply with this most recent budget? Because, of course, the issues are, you know, varied here in, this, in the city of St. John's, whether it be the taxation increase of some 13% this year, then there's always going to be issues regarding traffic and traffic calming and snow clearing and all the rest. So where will your focus be when you knock on doors? Well, you hit most of them there. Um, obviously, my my main concern would be fiscal sustainability and the impacts that seemingly a disconnected city has from its residents. You know, many people on fixed income, many people, most people struggling on some level, and you know, almost every budget. Well, every budget, the expenses of the city are going up. Um, you know, last year they absorbed uh, six million from past surpluses that were ran by responsible. Uh, groups of individuals down there. Not saying they're irresponsible because they're not. They're trying. I think they're trying their best. But I think it's within an environment of of feeling like it's going to be better in the future. So we just keep keep on keeping on. But but it, I, I don't believe that's the case. I think we're witnessing a situation where we need to start cutting the cloth differently and taking a different approach. In 2021, they did a poll about the 2022 budget after the election and. You know, they actually quoted the results of that poll, but only like 80 people um, submitted to that poll. And and the specific poll they talked about, which were people said something effective that um, we're okay if you increase spending as long as services are increased. Well, there's only 15 people submitted to that poll, and 50% of them said that. So, so somehow we have got to figure out a way to have more responsible fiscal management. You know, because again, we're just it's just boiling frogs. I was at a Christmas party. Christmas Eve, which really drove home my need to step up. And there was a business owner there, and he pays $60,000 a year in taxes on his business, plus he has a home in the city. And he didn't realize that they'd gone up that much. I mean, for him, you know, the cost for him might be eight, dollars $9,000 more next year. And, and of course, all these increases are baked in. There's no world where those things go down. So it's not a one-time hit. You know, your expenses go up. And there's not an environment where people are seeing their incomes increase at that rate. So that's that's my main focus. However, you know, I bring a lot of experience running frontline action my you know, for the last thirty years, which is an incredible time when I think about this that long, but you know, encouraging people to be healthier, it's a big thing for me. I've got a couple of degrees, economics and business. I'm I'm hoping that that will help me sitting around the table. You know, I I'm really looking forward to engaging with all the different groups in the ward. Um, you know, it's a pretty diverse ward. Of course, it goes from you know Empire Avenue all the way up, all the way up to uh, Higgins Line, and then all the way out Thorburn Road, even you know out in, out into out past the Outering Road and, and Camo Road. A lot of businesses in, in that in that area as well. Camo Road and, and Elizabeth Avenue, and you know, so 
you know, there's a lot to it, and I'm looking forward to hearing their their issues. I mean, I think speed cameras are something we got to get on the go. I know I know that speeding is a big issue, and 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 calming the traffic, uh, snow clearing, of course. I mean, and then the environmental awareness, which I know the city is, you know, pays lip service to, and I know they they, they do have measures in place to try and try and mitigate it. But but we really got to step up there, and hopefully there's some cost savings there where you can kill two birds, where we can maybe reduce how much people are driving around in vehicles and. Well, there's, there's a lot to it. I don't, I don't want to sugarcoat it, but I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, being able to be at that table, and I think my voice can can help the residents of the ward and, and the city in general. You talk about traffic and or congestion. Uh, I think it's encouraging, and unlike maybe some of the groups out there who are always, always advocating for public transit, improving and enhancing public transit, I thought we were looking at a good news story this year. You know, Metrobus with $5 million in the black, and then the opportunity for the city to decrease their subsidy of Metrobus. Ridership is way up for a variety of factors, whether it be the free bus passes for low-income earners, the numbers of new Canadians for using public transit. Whatever the reason is, ridership is way up. And they're actually sitting on a fair amount of money. If I remember, I don't have it in front of me. I think Metrobus was able to pay down $1.7 million in debt, so sitting on $3.3 million to improve service. You know, we've talked about the introduction of Metrobus on demand, some of the additional zip routes, those rapid routes, which are certainly has to be part of public transport. The people who are advocating for better public transport see it as a bad news story that the city was able to reduce its subsidy or support of Metrobus, and I'll leave that up to them. I mean, that's their opinion, and we'll see if the city does indeed lean in and improve it to see more and more people taking the bus because the traffic congestion in this city is madness. It's not designed to accommodate the number of vehicles that are on the road. Not to say that we could redesign St. John's because we physically cannot. You know, certain areas as we look at sustainable growth, which comes with issues regarding, you know, walkability, public transport, amenities build up, not out. There's a lot to that coming wave because the city has applied for copious amounts of money to build somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 units here from the Housing Accelerator Fund federally, but it's how those are built, whether or not we hit the affordability targets. You know, the province's plan is going to be built by the private sector, managed by the private sector, but rents will be introduced by the Housing Corporation in an effort to make sure affordability is the outcome that is desired. So we'll see how the city tackles that, but I think the concept of build up, not out is kind of lost on some. You know, people are worried about sight lines and get, you know, I know you bought your home for specific reasons, whether you're backing onto a green space or the ability to see the narrows or whatever it is that made you want to make that purchase. So there's a lot to that building money and how we're going to do it, how some of the zoning is going to change. Like we're talking about a 10-story apartment building on Torbay Road. It's kind of time that we did things like that around here. You know, it's not, if we keep going the way we are, we're simply going to have the res, uh, continued reliance on single-family dwellings and the vinyl jungle, the vinyl siding jungle that is now becoming a big feature of this city. I'll give you the final word, Tom, before we get to the news. There's a lot there. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not too hugely supportive of cutting Metrobus funding to pay for other things, i.e. money, more money for mile one. Um, as far as densification, we, we've got to focus on that because most of these, this urban sprawl is not sustainable, and, and Councillor Hickman has said that we're spending 5%. Uh, got to replace 5% of the roads and sidewalks every year, so, you know, and that's only going to get worse as our city ages. So we have a lot of challenges, and, I, and again, I want to call on all residents, not just in Ward 4, like anywhere in this province, Remember, your councils take the lead from the city of St. John's, and if we get away, if we let them get away with 30% tax raises, so if you have people in the ward, family, friends, reach out to them and, and, and ask them to vote for Tom Davis, and because and, I'm going to be up for the challenge of trying to 
reverse the trend that we see down there. I appreciate the time. Good luck, Tom. Take care, everyone. You too. Bye-bye. You know, a big contribution of the increase in property tax is just how much of the snow clearing ice control fleet had to be replaced, how much of the garbage collection fleet had to be replaced. You know, I get it. If they're saying that some 60% of those pieces of equipment were saw downtime last year, that, I mean, we can't have that. That's not sustainable either. But maybe it was a, uh, a look back of five years of fleet management to see whether or not we actually were you know, online in time with how we rotate the fleet to ensure that we don't have one of these huge big increases because look, 13% is not insignificant, right? How are we doing on the phone, Dave? Let's get her going. People don't even know we're back on the air, maybe. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the air uh, to talk about whatever's on your mind, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Mayor Whitburn. That's Hilda Whalen. Mayor Whalen, you're on the air. Good morning. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Yes. It was a nice Christmas. Now buried in snow. Lovely. Just enough snow to call it away Christmas in town. Perfect, perfect. You know, I was calling for, I thought about last week, where, whereabouts, I wonder, is the Vale Virgin? They're starting to sell off stuff crazy. Has it been moved? That's what I'm wondering. Now, Patty, I, I, I tasked you last time to keep an eye on it. <laughs> Yeah, now the last time you did, it was it remained right where it was. Yeah. I, I don't know if that was actually part of the sell-off. I mean, you know, people use the word priceless, but in actual fact, that one can indeed be considered. I know that there's a number that everything's actually valued at, but for people who don't know what the Veiled Virgin is, I mean, it's literally one of the most extraordinary works of art that I've ever seen. So it's a fellow named Giovanni Strazza was the sculptor. Uh, he's a, obviously an Italian guy, and he created the Veiled Virgin amongst some many other extremely uh, cool things. I think another one is called the the Vestal Virgin Tuxia, maybe, or something like that. But if you've never seen the Veiled Virgin, it's a sight to behold. Yeah, there's been a lot of uh, uh, sculptors who've tried to remake it, but they... They will fall way short. Absolutely. No, we got to keep an eye on that. That's, that's worth a good dollar. Oh, 100% it is. That, Carrara marble. It was given to the province. That was not given to the church. That's right. Yeah, it wasn't. A, it wasn't a property belonging to the royal or the Roman Catholic Episcopal Corporation, as far as I remember. But I can very quickly find out if that's still where it's supposed to be. You know where it came to my mind last week. I said, F.L. Virgin is enough to house all them dollars. <laughs> yeah, it's at the, uh, I guess, the the presentation convent. Yeah. Right there. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, we can figure that out. Well, sounds good. Do you talk, did you talk to Mary Pollock yet, the, the lady from, from the Tacoma? Uh, we sent her a note, and this is about the practice-ready assessments. Yeah. Yeah. So I haven't heard back as of yet, but uh, so there's no problem for me to send a follow-up because you did indeed provide me with the contact info. Yeah, I've been talking to her since. I know there's been uh, approximately 30 of these applications have been uh, uh, gone through in Newfoundland. So many are waiting for PRA. Some are clinical assistants. So you keep throwing mud at the wall. Some got a stick. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, and again, that's something that we have talked with, not only with the interim dean, Dr. Dolores McKean, I believe is her name off the top of my head. We had around to talk about this and other issues at uh, Memorial University's medical school. So this one here, we can we can absolutely keep talking about because in other provinces, whether or not we actually have the capacity, because the practice ready assessments at Munns Med School are relatively new. And yeah. we got the numbers broke down by uh, Dr. McKean. Also, there's the thought, you know, whether or not we have the capacity for the supervision required for the PRAs or to extend the numbers of students and or the frequency of it, because I, I believe it's 12 weeks off the top of my head. But in other provinces, for instance, I think the province of British Columbia, they tripled the number of seats for practice ready assessment. So obviously they're figuring that, you know, for tra- doctors who are trained abroad, who actually can qualify, get a license with the college and pass the exams and 12 weeks of practice in rural Newfoundland in this case, uh, rural Newfoundland and Labrador, it's absolutely part of it. I mean, we're not fully reliant on the PRAs and the graduates of to to satisfy the need for family doctors, but they absolutely play an active role. Look no further than the increase they brought forward in BC. Absolutely. They they, they do fill the part. And some of these doctors are working in hospitals for years. They have experience, you know, beyond just their graduate rate. Yeah, they're not just fresh out of the box doctors. No, no, that's absolutely right. They're very. Some of them have even had their own practice, right, with a doctor there. But this is basically their practice. So that is absolutely is. And and as for the, the university, they they have to come across with the seats. We got thirty nine waiting, and uh, twelve weeks they'll have another twenty or thirty. So, I mean, you know, you can't back it up to 40 or 50. Uh, Basically, uh, do all the work for uh, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, or some other province. I know one of the doctors I passed to him, Dr. Shanice, he's in British Columbia. And I was talking to him, and he said uh, he thanked me very much for, you know, keeping him informed and, and so on and so forth. He said, but I waited so long for the recruitment so they didn't get back to me. He said, so I took the offer in BC, but I have a lot of graduates with my credentials. Would you mind if I forward them to you? So go ahead, man, and forward them. So eventually, I suppose we will get some of these doctors on, on the go. Yeah, the the PRAs are in place in some nine provinces in the country. It absolutely does play a role. I'll add to it the complicating factor that there's only 17 medical schools in the country, most of which have expanded the number of seats that they're offering, including here in this province, and expand then consequently the number of seats for people from this province. But then there's also the issue of Canadian-born doctors who were trained abroad and can't get a residency. Now, of course, the medical schools will give preference to their own graduates, but there's something to that as well. I don't know what that number would be, but it's absolutely in the hundreds. Yes, well, uh, Ireland, for instance, now that they've given Ireland and UK and Australia, they'll accept them as their own. They don't have to go through many loops type thing. So the first thing I did was look through all the applications to Ireland and Australia and forward them on, right? Because that does make it make a difference. That's that's quite a few that you will get now. In fact, I'm going to call Mary and say, "How many do you know you got from Ireland and the UK?" Send me there. I just got this out of the corner of my eye. I saw it coming in. The title, subject line is Veiled Virgin. The sculpture is still at the presentation convent. There you go. Yeah, you go. Hope we don't get. That's that's a very precious item, right? It absolutely is. And then I I think you. I think with all our churches and the way everything is gone, everything is closed up, most of them. 
the few remaining churches I got or the convents I think we should hold dear and like you say hold dear to that that's very important I appreciate the time this morning Hilda thank you you're welcome bye bye as Whitbourne Mayor uh, Hilda Whalen you know, also in the world of family medicine, because that gets a lot of the keen focus, even though there are certainly shortages in some areas of specialists across the country, including here. Of course, because we harken back to the story regarding the wait time, pardon me, the wait list for folks looking for a cardiac procedure, and that list grew. Thankfully, there are, is another cardiac surgeon that is going to be on staff uh, sometime this month. The thought is at some point during the year we'll have five, which is more than the uh, high watermark of four in past years. So hopefully it can chip away from that list that grew from 150 to 200 people. And, of course, with the anxiety associated with waiting for a heart procedure, or I guess any medical procedure, that would be something that would keep people up at night and, of course, stress their families out as well. But remember that the college, the uh, National College of Family Doctors, the thought was that they were going to introduce a third-year residency, up from two to three, and that brought along a lot of concerns because family medicine, of course, is very complex and comprehensive, and so they thought that an additional year of residency would be a benefit to the healthcare system. The college has walked away from that. I think the overwhelming feedback they got was that that would influence more and more doctors to not pursue being a family doctor, which is, for most provinces, one of their absolute keen focus areas because access to primary care is multifaceted complicated issue, right? Because if you don't get timely access to a primary care team, whether it be at a collaborative care clinic or with your current family doctor, what have we seen as a result? The symptoms have worsened by the time you actually get into the churn, into the system itself. We've seen emergency rooms operating over capacity day in and day out. Wait times, of course, will of co- be reflected with that capacity issue at the ERs. So anyway, apparently that veiled virgin is not, well, we know it's not owned by the Episcopal Corporation, was a gift to the province, and it remains where it's supposed to be at the presentation comment. Also, this is not uh, unforeseen. People asking about a couple of the rebate dates coming up uh, this month. So they ask about GST and, of course, the Climate Action Incentive Plan, the carbon tax rebate. The GST rebate is the 5th of January, and the carbon tax rebate is on the 15th of January. So those monies will be flown in the door. And also, when we talk about carbon tax and the implications here in this province, there are scheduled hikes coming to carbon tax. For instance, on gasoline going from 14 cents to 17 cents. I believe that happens on the uh, 1st of April. And then with the carve-out of carbon tax associated with home heating fuels, the fairness conversation that's happening across the country, which I think is not, it's not unjustifiable. It's absolutely realistic. We're cutting the carbon tax on some of the dirtiest fuels, keeping it in place on some of the more cleaner fuels like natural gas, which is predominantly used in Western Canada. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program from an emailer wondering what we were talking about with some of the unknowns regarding access to federal tax credits regarding wind to hydrogen to ammonia for export sale. So the question being asked by people like John Risley is whether or not there's going to be a level playing field because the tax credits do range from 15% all the way to 40%, and of course that adds up to enormous sums of money, is because there's a huge difference between green hydrogen, which is uh, a a product that comes from renewables, in this case wind, there will be interaction with the provincial grid and for operations here or proponents here that will be by and large fueled by uh, hydroelectricity. But if we're talking about 
equitable opportunities, then if there's going to be a much uh, a significant reduction in the amount of money it costs to operate if you're going to access a grid that's fueled by coal, for instance, in the province of Nova Scotia, remarkably, in 2024, over 51% of the energy generated in the province of Nova Scotia comes from coal-fired generation or coke-fired. So there is a huge difference between the two. There's still a lot of unknowns, but when we talk about looking back and looking forward, it stands to reason that at some point during this calendar year, we will see f- more momentum on the onshore wind concerns and the proponents of which four were put forward to the next stage. That does not include pattern energy out of the, pro- the uh, port of Argentia. There's no question that there's going to be some more decisions made there by the government anyway. That doesn't mean that final investment decisions will be made by the uh, companies until they get some more sureties surrounding what these rules look like and access to and uh, definitions of green versus gray and all the different moving parts there. So that was the issue there brought forward by the proponents. Not necessarily a provincial government concern. Let's go to line number one. Tim, you're on the air. Uh, did they get any shelters for the people in the tents yet? Uh, the tents that were set up behind the colonial building? Yeah. Well, when you hear and you talk to people who have been on site day in and day out, they say it's been a rotating number anyway. You know, um, one night there'd be five, or next night there'd be two. My understanding is there was one night over the holidays where there were zero. Where they were, I don't really know. I guess it's a combination of securing housing, being in a shelter, or in a hotel room. Could they use some of the ch- any of the churches for a shelter? Well, the unfortunate reality here is that we don't own any of the, many or any of the churches any longer. All sold off. What so, about Bury? Bury does a great job with their operations and their beds are occupied, their capacity. We understand that more people are taking the opportunity now with a better view of what the, ga- the gathering place is like versus some of the other emergency shelters. I think yeah. some of the folks at Ten City have taken the opportunity to be uh, sheltered at the gathering place, which is good news. And there's certainly some in hotels. I mean, we've talked uh, over the past uh, last year with how many people have been in hotels for an extended amount of time. And not folks who are new to the country, folks who are from here, born and raised. What about the government could use some of the housing? What about housing? Well, you know, the government kind of created a whip for its own tail regarding the number of units at Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation. You know, we were told that there were 750 new units have been added to the portfolio when, in fact, the number turned out to be 11. They have given us a status update on the repairs and renovations of some units, so it looks like they're on a reasonable track to get most of those units reopened sooner than later, but that's no good to someone who's been living in a tent today. I think the other one is, you know, Mark Wilson, for instance, who's been one of the outspoken advocates. He was in Ontario over the holidays looking at some of those modular uh, shelter units, whether or not they're part of the options moving forward or modular housing or double wide trailers, because it's going to be it's going to be difficult to build the number of units required in short order. Or they Uh, could have some trailers like Anginette, like the trailer court, they could have have some like trailers like that. Yeah, there's every option needs to be considered at this point. 
certainly there's no question and there are plenty of different options available some folks have concerns with those modular shelter units that mark has been exploring because they are heated and they have a bed and a desk and a fridge and those yeah. types of you know fundamentals but they don't have bathroom facilities or kitchen facilities so what that would mean would be finding a place to set them up if indeed that's what happens and then trying to build communal bathroom facilities communal cooking facilities because it would in essence be like a a self-sustainable commune for the lack of a yeah. better word so i don't think we've really fully wrapped our mind around how that would work but it's an option that we've got to explore yeah okay thanks i appreciate the time tim bye-bye yeah, and then it moves on to the conversation of repurposing government-owned buildings fair enough I don't know how conducive some of those would be to the housing concerns that people are talking about. You know, people point to the Hoyles as zoning. And then the fellas just sent me an email about repurposing the canopy growth facility on the White Hills as a starting point for the penitentiary. The only problem with that is that we don't own that building. I believe Canopy still owns that. And remember, when that story first broke regarding a numbered company and the lavish amount of lease that was being paid for that plot of land. So we don't necessarily have any ability to repurpose that facility at this moment in time. Not to say that in years to come that it couldn't be exactly what it was intended to be, a hydroponic facility. Because when, in addition to the housing issue, we absolutely have concerns with uh, supply chains and the price of groceries, access to healthy foods. There are more greenhouses being built. In fact, I read a story this morning talking about Dan Rubin and a greenhouse that they're calling a sun tunnel. It's built up on Mount Sio, uh, become the third greenhouse in that particular area. It's got some unique features. It's built like a pentagon. And they're capturing the sun, not with glass, but with, uh, I think they're calling opaque wood, and funneling it through the way the building is designed to try to heat and to grow the green leafy product throughout the course of the t entire year. So we'll, maybe we'll get Mr. Rubin on, because I'm interested to hear more about that particular concern. So in the world of repurposing government buildings, I mean, how long has that been where we've heard from the province and I'm going to say successive governments, talking about the numbers of buildings that are government assets that are currently not being used for the reason they were built for, so whether it be repurpose them or to sell them. Because with every unused building comes the associated carry costs, even that's something as fundamental as insurance. And, you know, many of the buildings would still have to have electricity because if you turn off all of the heat, then, of course, at this time of the year, all you would do is have the pipes explode, and consequently, you know, it comes with that. That's indeed if the water still running to the building itself. So, yeah, there's a lot on that housing front. Also, in the effort and the conversation of looking back and picking up on it and looking forward. With more and more people, regardless if you want an electric vehicle, you know, the issue regarding your cell phone and your laptop and the components required to build those batteries, and yes, for electric vehicles, the demand has seen an uptick. We talked about some of the concerns, or pardon me, some of the opportunities that were being discussed at the most recent expo in Labrador. Because we're one of the few democratic nations on the face of the earth that has the vast majority, I think it's some 80% of the minerals required right here in our province. Curiously, and I know it takes a long time between identifying a find, putting forward all the applications and the permits to actually uh, develop it and to produce, that lead time or lag time is probably way too long, and that doesn't mean we have to be careless with environmental concerns, but we understand how mining works. So haven't heard much in the way of, beyond maybe identifying a lithium find or cobalt, 
but also whether or not that's going to come with the secondary or tertiary processing because we've done this repeatedly. We extract it, we sell it elsewhere, and then we buy back the end product. So hopefully there's a way for Canada and this province to be better on that front. Also in an effort in the world of energy, looking back to look forward. Last year, Equinor, of course, a Norwegian-based oil company, who moved all of their operations and their head office in Canada is right here in St. John's. They sucked all the air out of the room at the Energy NL annual conference by saying that they were shelving Beta North for three years. They're talking about the fact that they need to find better ways to uh, accommodate the price tag, which had grown at that point to, I believe, $16 billion. Then, later on in the year, Equinor came back with more hopeful commentary and saying they're still bullish on the potential for that particular project. Because when we talk about the largest producing oil field currently offshore, it would be Hibernia, well over a billion barrels at this point. They're talking about the potential out of the Bay to North find to be somewhere around maybe 3 billion barrels. So on those two fronts, what will we see in the calendar year of 2024 regarding the potential for Bay to North to get more traction, the potential for more mining activity, you know, in, a, in addition to like Marathon Gold and some of the things that are happening on the island. It's that wealth of minerals in Labrador and the Labrador Trough, which I'd be surprised if we don't hear more about it, including not only extraction, but supply chain related matters. So anyway, let's take a break. When we come back, hopefully we're speaking with you. If not, we'll dig into some of the things we can anticipate in 2024 regarding GST exemptions and the increase in income tax and CPP contributions and whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, via text from uh, my colleague Linda Swain in the newsroom, someone calling in wondering about what they can anticipate on their carbon tax rebate or their climate action incentive payment. So using the 2023-2024 numbers, which includes the January payment, for a single adult, it's $164. In the second adult in the home, it's $82. For each child, it's $41. So consequently, a family of four is $328. That's the quarterly number. If you look at it on an annual basis, first adults, $656 over the course of four quarterly payments this calendar year. Second adult annual uh, annual number would be 328 Each child, a dollar of $164. Consequently, a family of four, $1,312 annually in four quarterly payments. The question that's been asked, and I can't get the Department of Finance to tell me that anything has changed, because when we know that the carbon tax has been carved out for home heating fuels, which was absolutely part of the calculation leading in to the carbon tax rebate conversation, is I can't get uh, the Department of Finance to tell me that that number has been reduced. So as far as we know, on the 15th of this month, when the uh, carbon tax or the climate in action incentive payment comes out, it will indeed be for that single adult $164. Okay, given some of the tax-related implications that kick in, some of which kick in today, and some of this we actually heard back in November in the fall economic statement. So let's start with short-term rentals. 
You know, in some communities, because it has been left up to provincial jurisdiction, but some municipalities have taken the bull by the horn and either talked about putting uh, a moratorium on any further approvals for short-term rentals and or the ability to control them or understand the implications regarding the number of people who are homeless and short-term rentals. There's been lots of independent review done about that exact relationship, but we do know that the province has a deadline of March the 31st of this year for the owners of a short-term rental to have to register with the province. And if you don't, you'll be unable to advertise your offering on Verbo or Airbnb. Also, when it comes to uh, tax deductions, the federal government once again told us in the fall economic statement, and this kicks in as of today, or yesterday, the 1st of January, is any of the GST, HST exemptions, elimination of all deductions for any short-term rentals, new alternative minimum tax rate, or pardon me, for any of these tax reductions regarding your short-term rental. So, the government is eliminating that tax break. So if you're an operator or an owner of one of these short-term rentals, any income tax deduction for expenses, if you operate in provinces or municipalities that have banned short-term rentals, you are not eligible for that tax rebate. If you live in a province that still allows short-term rentals, but operators are not compliant with local regulations, that would be reference to the March 31st deadline coming up here for the short-term, uh, the short-term rental owners and operators. If you're not compliant with the local regulations and laws, you will also be denied the deduction. So the need to register with the province is beyond simply advertising. It's also the ability to have that particular tax relationship. When we talk about GST, and we had this conversation with Christy Allen on the program, I think it was on Friday, the 22nd December, before we wrapped it up for the holidays. GST exemption, and this kicks in. There has been the elimination of GST, HST on professional services rendered by psychotherapists and counseling therapists. So that's an ability to allow people to get the care they need. And we know the numbers of folks who are struggling with their mental wellness, mental illness. The Parliamentary Budget Office, which is a pretty good, solid, go-to, reputable source of information and numbers, they say that that measure alone will be... Well, and the end result will be $64 million in lost revenue over the course of five years. So we're talking about pretty small potatoes, and it also comes with an affordability issue for Canadians. That's the good news. Also, we talked about the fact that we learned in the fall economic statement that GST has been removed from the construction of new rental apartments. We'll see what that means for private developers to want to go ahead and pull the trigger on these developments. I think adding to that conversation is whether or not there will be the appetite, municipally speaking and or provincially, to talk about rentals and the low vacancy rate. Some of that comes with the fact that some of the natural churn from being a renter to move into the world of having having a mortgage and owning your own home, or I guess owning it with the bank, some of that has been stalled because of increased mortgage rates. So that natural churn has been kind of sputtered for a little bit at this moment in time. And then we talk about the price of rent and the average price of rent right across the country and whether or not there'll be the appetite to talk about rent control and vacancy control. I'm not suggesting that either or is a great idea, but it's worth the conversation because we do have an extremely low vacancy rate, especially on the Northeast Avalon, and some of those issues regarding the spike in rent is worthy of conversation. Also, when it comes to CPP, Pretty big changes coming uh, on CPP this year. So what they're talking about is a second level of CPP contributions. Basically, this uh, goes all the way back to 2019 when this conversation began. So here's what it uh, boils down to in a nutshell. 
Combined with the annual increase in CPP contributions, the added second level means an employer's annual CPP payment will go up by $302 in 2024, increasing from a 2023 maximum of $3,754. In 2024, the maximum would be all the way to uh, just over $4,000. So for the individual, you are going to see an increase in your contributions as well. So it's going to be in the neighborhood of $302 up. If you're self-employed, you get it on both ends, as the employer and the employee. So they're going to pay double. Uh, They're going to pay both on the second level increase. So also, when it comes to the pension ceiling, the maximum pension earnings around last year, there was a maximum of $66,600. And once you had factored in the exemption of $3,500, it means that in 2023, the 5.95% CPP contribution rate was applied on incomes of $63,100 or less. Now, the first pension ceiling is now $68,500, or if you factor in the exemption of $3,500, it's $65,000. So that will impact the way we all contribute to our retirement in the index savings that is indeed CPP. So those are some changes coming on those fronts. Also, what they're calling the new alternative minimum tax. Basically, there's pretty significant changes coming to the uh, alternative minimum tax. What it does, it's sort of a, I guess it's fair to call it a safety valve, which is supposed or intended to prevent the high income taxpayers from using deductions and other tools available through them, their understanding of the tax code and their well-paid accountants to disproportionately lower their tax bills. This is a bit of a strange one. Actually, let's take this call, but we'll get back to that because there's some complicating factors in there, and there's some gray areas associated with that alternative minimum tax rate. Let's go to line one. Good morning, Larry. You're on the air. Hi, Larry. Hi. Good morning, Patty. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you as well. Thank you. I'm, uh, I'm calling this morning about a, like a herd gas situation. We've been here on the aisle now for two straight weeks without any gas. And our uh, our uh, store owner made several calls to different companies, uh, started with the one that they're always getting the gas from, which came from Fogo, and uh, nope, and... Uh, so you must be on Change Islands, are you? Yes, okay. yes. And they're done with it. Uh, that was Altamar, and uh, I think they even moved that fog on. I'm not 100% sure, but and uh, anyway, uh, I mean they've tried uh, several other places uh, for gas, and uh, nobody don't seem to want to come out there. So, what do we do? We're out here, you know, uh, isolated, but uh, no gas and. And, uh, and, you know, I mean, we, we got to have gas. I mean, we got for emergency reasons, for one thing. And, and uh, I mean, people, could, we can't go bringing gas on the ferry the first time that that I comes across there. I mean, I'm a fisherman, and we're going to need uh, gas now for laughter fishing. So I'm not going to have much choice. I need to take a drum and go over and buy a drum of gas and, and bring it home. So technically, I'm not allowed to do that. So no, I wouldn't think so. So, did well, you say Larry has been two straight weeks without any gas delivered? Yep. And the uh, the oil, the furnace oil, I think right now is coming from uh, Lewisport, or or we, we know it's coming from the other side. But when, but I think that's coming from Lewisport. I think that's uncertain. So, 
you know what I mean? What what do we do? I I, I can't see how, how we can be left out here like that without any gas. You know, I mean, you want gas for everything. I mean, you get up, and you got to get up the closest place that we can go. I mean, I, I met somebody on the ferry the other day. I mean, that's that's a also. Uh, the beginning of uh, another thing there with uh, interfering with traffic on the ferry really when there's no need I mean there's people up in our lineup just for no other reason on either a car or vehicle getting low and uh, just went across the stone belt to the gas station and get some gas and come on home again and all of this kind of stuff I mean it's creating a, a lot of you know agony and torment and so I don't know what uh, what we're supposed to do about it. I don't know if the, anybody in government can assist or help. Or It's hard to say, isn't it? Because, you know, it would be up to the companies that deliver and sell the gas to the individual gas stations that it's the, this is kind of their bag. I don't know if the province can do anything about that. But it's I guess they will just make this a business decision. Whether or not they have the required time to deliver it versus the money they make from it. I guess that's how they made the, the decision. Oh, yeah, um, definitely. I mean, the uh, store owner uh, was told uh, this morning by one of them that they just can't uh, spare a vehicle for a half a day minimum to come out there. It could be out there all day, depending on the ferries, right? Sure. But, uh, you know, they, they just couldn't uh, spare a vehicle to come out there for a half a day. Well, you know, Good for them, bad for us. But I mean, I, I don't. In the at the end of the day, how, how are we going to be able to operate without gas? It's an excellent question, and uh, I think you made an important point there regarding congestion on the ferry. For people that would have not been on the ferry that day, simply having to go wherever to get a tank of gas in their vehicle, now they're taking up a spot on the ferry that would otherwise be vacant. Exactly, and and it, it will be. You know, a, a fair amount of vehicles because, I mean, the vehicles here, we got to have gas because don't forget, we've been out here for over a year without a doctor visit or a nurse visit other than some shots for the COVID. And, uh, I'm, and you know, like every other community, I mean, we're, I can just take probably a dozen people here on the island now that's uh, got very, very serious illness. I'm one of them, but there's there's people there. I mean, just changing their own catheters. They're creating infections because of it, and then they got to go in. They've been in and out of the hospital for days at a time because of it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. We don't really. It's, it's hard to see the sense in it, but that's what's going on. Those people who got to cut open their own infections in their. Uh, cuts and that to get the infection out because other than that you got to get on a ferry and and go and sit in the emergency room for four or five hours or longer if you're lucky if you're lucky <laughs> yeah so you know the, the gas really is a very important thing to us i mean especially when you're when you're without a lot of other things you know you can't you can't run to the nurse you can't run to a doctor and in town, so you you got to be going away. So gas is essential, and no more than that to it. But how we're going to get around to getting it back is another thing. But I'm looking for help. We're looking for help anyway. If there's any out there, anyway, anybody can help. 
it's a sad state of affairs. I remember there was a community, if I'm not mistaken, it was Black Tickle. When they lost their gas station, that was the beginning of the end for many families. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's just, I mean, there's a lot of people who just wouldn't even stay here anymore because of it. I mean, we've got a lot of seniors here, just about all seniors, and close to it. And nobody's going to be, uh, a lot of people is not going to stay around here with a quarter of a tank of gas and don't know if they're going to be able to get over to get any or somebody's going to bring them some or whatever. And they got doctor's appointments then to go to. I mean, there's, I can stay here all day coming up with reasons why we definitely got to have our gasoline back somehow yeah you don't realize what you got until it's gone that's obviously a big deal for the folks on change islands and i would imagine as to your point it's a big deal for everyone who uses the ferries on that run definitely larry i appreciate the time i'm not exactly or entirely sure where to point you but for folks who might know more about it to me and what can or should be done if they give us a call or send me a note we'll talk about it on the show Thank you very much, buddy. Appreciate the call. Happy New Year, Larry. You too. Okay, bye-bye. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Well, we're talking about some of the new implications this year regarding taxes and CPP and whatnot, and we started in on the alternative minimum tax. Okay. So this is all the way, is as old, pardon me, as 1986. So it's meant that regardless of any available tax deduction that you have, a person has to pay at least 15% of income above $40,000. Here's some of the changes coming. So this hasn't been enabled by legislation as of yet, but that absolutely is coming given the continued supply and confidence agreement between the federal liberals and the federal NDP. So... Uh, again, hasn't been enabled by legislation. They say that the alternative minimum taxable income amount will rise to $173,000. So it might not impact many, but it comes with a couple of complicating factors. And the rate for that income above that amount is taxed to, uh, it's going to be risen to 20.5%. Here's the issue. Some what they call more ordinary Canadians, because that's a pretty whopping huge number to bring in annually, $173,000. But... If you had a one-time spike in money, say you sold off some shares, or you made some investment that came to that bare fruit, and so the money comes in the door, and all of a sudden, you're swept up in a one-time only into this tax bracket of having an income over $173,000. So while the intention makes sense to try to limit the number of high-income Canadians that can find all these mechanisms and loopholes for the tax implication, it could sweep up a couple of other folks unbeknownst to them. Also, when we talk carbon tax, so we gave out the numbers of what people can expect on the 15th of January for their climate action incentive plan. Again, this has been a big conversation on the federal campaign trail, of which there's no official campaign as of yet. No rich has been dropped, but you and I both know campaigning is at least six months old for the Conservatives in particular. They will focus in on one of their slogans, which is catching on. And they're doing very well in the polls, even though I don't give a whole lot of credence to polls at this moment in time. Things change very quickly, potentially in politics. And who you're going to vote for, I'll leave that up to you. On the 1st of April, that's where we'll see the next forecasted increase in carbon tax. So it goes from $65 a ton to $80 a ton. But, of course, that only happens in the provinces where they're on the federal backstop. That is not every province in the country. Quebec is on their own plan. They've had carbon tax in place for a long time. British Columbia is on their own plan. And the Northwest Territories, they're on their own plan. So they don't see that increase. When it 
Uh, we'll talk about the increase on the 1st of April. So when we talk about X per ton, it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around. A little bit easier in bite-sized morsels. Gasoline fuel charges are going to go to $0.17 cents from the rate last year of $0.14. Cents. Propane, the change will increase from 12, $0.02 cents from $0.10. Cents. Now, there will long be a debate as to whether or not a carbon tax is an appropriate mechanism. It's not that long ago that it was actually part of the conservative portfolio and not so much anymore. They talk about innovation and technology in an effort to curb emissions and or control them. And of course, the new go-to for the oil and gas companies is carbon sequestration and or carbon storage, of which there's been a $6 million pot of money put forward in this province to evaluate the possibility uh, whether it be environmentally speaking or economically speaking, to pump carbon down into depleted oil wells off our shore. First of all, they're doing off the coast of British Columbia. Their plan is to pump carbon into the basalt rock formations. They say after 25 years, that carbon pumped in actually turns into rock, similar to what is already in the formation. So that's what's happening there. What does not get included very often in the climate change or carbon tax conversation, and this one I think is kind of how many people address some of these big issues. When we say climate change, the first go-to for money, many people will say carbon tax, as opposed to what it means, what it looks like, what's real or not, and some other opportunities to talk about emissions. And I'm not getting in the business of talking about regulating methane coming from a cow and all the rest of it, even though in that conversation, we people immediately go to uh, how much we're going to charge, as opposed to some of the research being done with trying to change their diet and consequently lowering methane issues. And it's not just about cow farms, cattle farms. So they're talking about feed the cow seaweed, reduce the methane. That will be come out in the form of flatulence. Okay. Again, where I was trying to go with that carbon tax conversation is what are the real numbers regarding how many Canadians are better off at the end of the year having paid the carbon tax regarding how much they get in a rebate. So the PBO, the Parliamentary Budget Office, there's a bunch of different numbers that have been floated about out there, whether it be the two questions that were answered by the Bank of Canada on that uh, particular issue, which have been conflated, uh, obviously just for political purposes. But what is the real number? You know, will axe the tax, you know, someone who doesn't have any skin in the game, politically speaking, what are we actually looking at here? How many Canadian families will actually be worse off? It doesn't really sound like it makes much sense when you say it like that, but if you're getting more in a rebate than you actually pay in carbon tax, then math is math. And it doesn't, you know, your bank account doesn't necessarily care if the political stripe associated with it is red, blue, or orange, or green. Is whether or not people are going to be better off. It feels good to say X the tax, right? It does. It rolls off the tongue. If Canadians are polled about how much tax they pay, what's the obvious result? People want to pay less tax, right? This is not rocket science or rocket surgery. People, when polled, will say we pay too much tax. Doesn't mean that they're wrong either, because we are heavily taxed in this country, no question. But some of the polling on it is, I don't know how reliable we should lean on there because do, if I'm asked by a pollster, would you like to pay less tax? Yes, please. Right? Even though I know the programs and services that are fueled by my tax dollars because governments don't have any money. It's my money. So, But the obvious answer is I want to pay less. Let's keep talking about income taxes. And this began, began yesterday. 
The federal income tax bracket thresholds in Canada will rise 4.7% across all brackets. Last year in 2023, they went up 6.3%. So a small reduction in the impact on my basic taxes. Basic personal exemption amounts have also been adjusted to account for inflation, which is obviously helpful. The, for folks who are lucky enough to have a few bucks aside where they can put them in their tax-free savings account, the annual tax-free savings account contribution also rises from $6,500 in 2023 to $7,000 in 2024. You know, I'm not an investment advisor, so don't take any advice from me. But those tax-free savings account can be extremely helpful for Canadians. I think folks who have chose to park some of their money there are seeing the benefits of it. So the threshold has increased. Then you move on to employment insurance. The maximum insurable earnings ceiling for employment insurance rises to $63,000 starting yesterday, up from $61,500 last year. That means people only pay $1.66 per $100 earned on the first $63,500. Pardon me, I had to cough. So some of those changes are absolutely meaningful. So there's a lot of information, a lot of numbers to wrap your mind around inside of what's coming, whether it be yesterday on the 1st of January or carbon tax implications on the 1st of April. Uh-oh, throat's a bit dry. Didn't do much talking. I purposefully was very quiet over the holidays, and now I got the little frog in my throat. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, let's have less of me and more of you. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. We spoke with a counselor out in Long Harbor earlier in the program, talked about a variety of things, and including the fact that the province has said pretty clearly that they're moving away from any conversation about what people call regionalization, the county system. At one point, there was some work, a lot of work done by municipalities, Newfoundland and Labrador, submitting a plan to the Department of Municipal Affairs, talking about the creation of some 25 zones. And of course, one zone might not look like the other zone when we talk about the rules or legislation or the ability to share services or what have you. And that's obvious, right? Because what might work on the Great Northern Peninsula might not work on the Southwest Coast. So through the jigs and the reels, and I think predominantly because the local service districts did not feel included, and I think there was some base misunderstanding of exactly what regionalization meant and how it could benefit certain regions, it doesn't mean that there can't be cooperation between communities, and we've seen examples of that quite clearly already. So. The issue is dead in the water as far as the province is concerned. Whether or not it was a good idea or a bad idea, I'll leave that up to you, whether it be a leader of an LSD and or another incorporated municipality, of which there are some 275 in this province. So the new piece of legislation that they went with as opposed to any further conversation regarding county system or regionalization is the Towns and Local Service Districts Act. So it's been through second reading in the House. It has royal assent, and now off we go. So the biggest component therein was apparently this province was the last province in the country to have any community that's operating with a poll tax. So we had it in some 40 different communities, and that's now gone by the wayside, which is a pretty important shift. They're talking about over the course of the next three years some of these taxation uh, changes and fiscal changes and shifting away from the poll tax. We'll see 
probably moving away from what is extremely a regressive tax, that would be the poll tax, moving forward. Also, what it has allowed is for more autonomy for municipalities, which is what many people are looking for. They want flexibility, right? They want to come, they want to be able to draw their bylaws with much more freedom than they've had in the past. So as a part of this new legislation, so some 11 ministerial approvals have been removed in full. So what that means is less bureaucracy, more freedom for municipalities, less red tape. I think by and large, it's been supported by municipal leaders. And, you know, I'll let you tell me what you think of this new legislation, the interpretation that you have as a council in one community or another as to whether or not it's going to make things easier or better. The opposition parties at the time, they weren't necessarily opposed to the text inside the document. They were talking about the time with which they were given to digest 146 pages, which is front and back. So, you know, Minister Haggy, the minister responsible for that portfolio, he sort of pushed back against that, saying, you know, there was adequate time and briefings that were available, technical briefings and otherwise. But that's what the opposition parties were saying, is they didn't really have what they thought was enough time to understand what's in the legislation and to have appropriate levels of uh, informed debate inside question period. So that's where we're going with legislations at this point. No longer are we talking about uh, originalization. We're talking about the possibility for communities to recognize shared services as a path forward. Now, that new piece of legislation does not apply to the uh, cities in the province, so it doesn't apply to the city of St. John's, which has its own standalone act, and or Mount Pearl, and or Cornerbrook. So that's the issue on the whole municipal cooperation front. Also, when we have been talking about, you know, price of food, because that remains the most stubborn concern for most, we can talk about the price of gas and home heating fuels and all the rest, but it's food. It's the one thing that we all share, that we all need. We don't all heat our homes the same way, and we don't all vote for the same parties, but we all shop for food. We all need to eat. When it comes to the food inflation, which seems to be really quite stubborn, it's come back to earth somewhat, but as the grocery shopper in my house, I haven't felt any relief, to be honest with you. So then you talk about some of the work done at Dalhousie University in the Agri-Foods Lab. This has been a conversation we've been having on this show forever and a day. It's about how we understand what things like best before dates mean. When we talk about the tonnage of food wasted in this country and then compare it to the number of families relying on food banks, comparing it to the number of food insecure households, there really has to be more done. I don't know if you have any tips about either A, how you shop. Now, for some, if you live in the Northeast Avalon, shopping options are vastly different than they are in other parts of the province. You know, in very short order, I can go from... Walmart to Sobeys to Dominion to Pipers to Coleman's and everywhere in between. Not so much for other people, as we rightfully, as we understand. So whether it be understanding what a best before date means, whether it be having the food companies do a better and I would say a more honest job with Canadians about exactly how long their food will have the uh, nutritious qualities and or be fresh enough to be safely consumed. Because the best before date is simply a suggestion. I was really bad at this. When we got around the best before date, that food was no longer any good. Now, I still have that thought process when we talk about dairy products, for instance, but for so many other staples, we absolutely have the ability to continue to consume that food. Also, in the world of suggestions about how to preserve food, especially not to see leftovers go to waste, I, generally speaking, cook too much when I go to uh, make a supper for the family, and then consequently we've got the leftovers. I do think a lot of people have moved towards these, uh, what's the, uh, the reference I'm looking forward to here, the air 
have sucking the air out of the bag what's, what's the word I'm looking for on that front anywhere vacuum seal vacuum seal is what I'm looking for that has been very helpful for many even if you don't intend to put it in the freezer it's just a way to keep it alive of course it comes with an associated cost but I think if over the course of a year if we do the math on how much it costs to buy a vacuum sealer and the vacuum seal bags you're probably absolutely in the money at the end of the year when you talk about how much food has been wasted and I think people are being very conscientious and not just folks who are so-called low-income earners or the working poor and trying to make ends meet and try to provide uh, adequate eats for your family. I think folks, whoever actually is the middle class these days, and I would include whatever the upper middle class is, people are feeling it. You know, you see people looking at the amount of food on the uh, conveyor belt and then seeing it being rung through the till, and then you try to fill up maybe the bottom quarter of a regular reusable size shopping bag and looking at an $80 bill and thinking, how did we get here? So that conversation about food, and again, I will add to it, I don't know why one of the go-to potentials or options, I know they've expanded funding for things like community gardens and that type of thing. And I know it's expensive regarding startup costs to pepper the promise with hydroponics. But if we're really serious about having food with an accessibility related issue and or quality and nutritious content, then absolutely, of course, food being grown closer by where you live is going to be extremely beneficial. For me, it's easy enough. Again, I live in the east end of town. I've got access to a lot of different options. But for a lot of folks, it not only is about maybe if you buy close by where you live and the price point and you try to save a few bucks, which requires you to get in your vehicle and drive to who knows what. You know, I went with my wife to Costco the other day. And you can tell a lot of folks from out of town really stocking up, trying to take advantage of the bulk buying savings that can be part of shopping at some of the big box stores. I think we maybe have fooled ourselves about the savings that we can achieve at a price club or a Costco of the world. But you know full well, people are making day trips of it. Come in to visit some friends, visit some family, and before you make your way back to a smaller community, possibly outside the Northeast Avalon, outside the overpass, as they say, you got a vehicle full of stuff from Walmart and stuff from Costco, and rightfully so. It makes all the sense in the world to try to save some money by going to those types of options. But again, whether it be the province come up with a better strategy regarding greenhouses and community gardens and funding for, whether it be interest-free loans for anyone who's interested in getting involved in hydroponics. The actual president of the Hydroponics Association of Canada is a farmer from here. Their membership was relatively low, working towards expanding it, obviously, for every understandable reason, but I'm not quite sure why we haven't done a better job and growing more food closer by where people live. And maybe it's a matter of taking the bull by the horn. Maybe it's a municipal initiative that can be entertained by one community or another, because God knows one of the things that you're not directly involved with and or uh, responsible for as a municipal leader is food. But if you talk about doing what's best for the community, improving people's access to food products will be obvious. Let's check in on the Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline.vocm.com. But my favorite is when you join us live on the air, which you can do during this news break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. So, Maid mentioned uh, very briefly of the mining industry in this province and specifically critical minerals, of which we have an abundance. And that's going to be important moving forward. I don't know how people hear some of the things I say, but look, it's your money. You buy whatever you like. 
if you have no interest or you don't think electric vehicle is conducive to the temperature or, or the terrain or your commute that you have to have every day regarding the price to replace a battery and or access to uh, fast charging stations, again, these are all things that I guess come in time. It's one of those, if you build it, they will come. But I mean, it's not my conversation. This is about global issues regarding people's want to have a different type of vehicle. Again, the numbers in this province are minimal. When people talk about the grid capacity, I think we're a little bit of cart in front of the horse kind of stuff here. In this province, electric vehicles, uh, there was uh, 398 electric vehicles registered in the 2022 calendar year. That rate, uh, the total now of EVs in the province registered is 715. That's it. But it is a 126% increase over the previous year. Hybrid of vehicles also saw an increase. So the number of hybrids increased by 53%, bringing that total to 2,149. So we're talking about less than 3,000 of either hybrid and or electric vehicles. Yes, there are issues regarding federal mandates. And we spoke to Minister O'Regan about exactly that one day late last year before we were off the air. So this is where it gets tricky. My question to the minister will be, if they're going to put these mandates in place, and we don't know if the Liberals will be around long enough to see this be the reality. So all the new targets begin with the 2026 model year. Consequently, they say if they get their way, that at least 20% of new light-duty vehicles offered for sale in that year have to be EVs. The, requir the requirements increase annually. So 60% by 2030 and 100% by 2035. The concern there is obvious. Now, many people will indeed buy an electric, or pardon me, an internal combustion engine vehicle leading up to 2035. Whatever's on the ground gets grandfathered in. But the issue is the grid. When we're talking about even hydro at this moment in time, talking about need to double supply by 2050, given any of the forecasts, and it's not just about electric vehicles, it's about the forecasted demand uh, and supply. If that's the case, and the federal government will in essence be forcing our hand, if you don't buy a new ICE prior to 2035 and are gonna be forced based on availability and government rules to buy an EV, What's the federal government's responsibility regarding the grid? Because they cannot have it two ways. If you are going to make sure that the grid has a bigger demand on it, whether it be in generation and or distribution because of your own mandates, you've got to play an active role in ensuring that all the issues are attended to. Yes, with the number of electric engineers. Yes, with the amount of supply. Yes, with the distribution. Because the grid uh, upkeep and or expansion is expensive. Now, the operating cost of an electric vehicle is certainly very attractive to folks who see it conducive to their day-to-day -day routines. If it's simply a run-around-town vehicle where you shop and go to work or go to an appointment or visit your buddy, and maybe an EV is absolutely tailor-made for your needs. But again, when we bring it up, it's just talking about trends. I'm not suggesting you do anything. If you want to buy one, buy one. If you don't, don't. But yes, those are real questions. Whether or not there's going to be the required number of charging stations whether or not it's going to be the concern with your cost to replace a battery. But again, when we talk about replacing a battery, for some out there, I know a buddy of mine bought one in midsummer last year. There's like a 10-year warranty on his battery. When, how many people are keeping even their gas-powered vehicles longer than 10 years? Some are. Maybe you've got yourself into a manufacturer and a model and your amount of kilometers that you drive annually is very low and you can keep a vehicle for longer than 10 years. I would say those people are the exception, not the rule. 
many people go through more than one vehicle over the course of 10 years. And yes, when you talk about the amount of emissions that lead up to the building of an electric vehicle, and then use the, as they call it, the uh, downstream emissions concern, there has been plenty of research done to show that my operating costs are vastly different and from engineering to design to construction to sale to usage of an electric vehicle uh, versus something powered by fossil fuels there's there's upsides there for people if you're simply talking about your pocketbook you know one guy chimed in one day last year before we ran out of time for the holiday season his operating cost last year for charging his electric vehicle to i believe he drove somewhere in the neighborhood of thirty thousand kilometers was a thousand bucks certainly paying more to operate my rig and again this is not suggesting you do anything this is talking about actually news of the day regarding more people who are buying these rigs you know globally the uh, the global fleet of vehicles when we talk about electric vehicles is still somewhere just like three percent that's it we're not talking about the switch has been flipped and all of a sudden everybody's moved away from what we're traditionally used to and rely on and then of course yes if you are living in parts of rural Canada and you have the requirement for a half ton or three quarter ton pickup and the amount of power required to operate it, whether it be with what you do for a living and or the conditions where you live, it's an important part of the conversation. Absolutely. Then when we talk about the big transportation issues regarding semis and the like, they have introduced electric vehicles there, but they're not going to be something that we'll see dominate the road networks in short order. They won't be. So those are the questions being asked. You know, the cost to replace, the emissions regarding the extraction of the mineral, the construction of the battery, the construction of the vehicle, the weight of the vehicle, what it means for road upkeep and all the rest. So again, when we bring forward these issues, it's simply based on things that we hear from politicians and transitions and trends in the industry. So if there's going to be mandate conversations, then there's lots of questions that the federal government has to answer. And it would be not shirking the responsibility and saying, well, I mean, this is the jurisdiction of the provinces. They'll, uh, here's how the language is going to sound. They're going to say, well, we were told by the Supreme Court that we've gone too far on a couple of fronts. One being the designation of plastic as a toxic substance, even though uh, waste management is a provincial responsibility. And the uh, federal government's rules, they got overturned by the Supreme Court. Then they went on to talk about uh, government overreach regarding, once again, provincial boundaries and where the provinces should have the say not the federal government. So they've taken a couple of knocks here in the last six months regarding some of their policies. But on this one, they cannot tell us that, well, all the control of your grid, upkeep and expansion, is based on ratepayers' contribution to Newfoundland Power and Newfoundland Labrador Hydro. Not good enough. Because if you're going to make the impact and the demand on the grid much greater based on your own policies, then you must play a role. So anyway, again, electric vehicle is just part of the conversation. It's not a recommendation or a suggestion to talk about. So anyway, let's move away from the electric vehicles. I don't know if you're putting any stock in the pending by-election at Conception Bay, East Bell Island, and of course we know who the candidates are. There was some controversy on the PC side. The allegations coming from the District Association in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips, uh, or I guess Conception Bay, East Bell Island, was that Tina Neri was basically chosen by leader Tony Wakeham as opposed to what they are saying as a District Association as the appropriate process and protocol. There was some uh, resignations from, and there was a pretty harshly worded letter coming from the President 
of that district association regarding the selection of Ms. Neri, who is a town councillor in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips. We haven't spoke with Tina here on this program, but we have had a couple of conversations with Kimberly Churchill, who had the nomination for the NDP. And of course, we had one conversation with the Liberal uh, candidate, Fred Hutton. You know, again, it just stands to reason. When there's a by-election, it will be taken as some sort of review of government. And if the Liberals win, they'll be quick to say, well, people are satisfied with our government and our governance in the last couple of years, and so they'll ride that coattail. Then there'll be, if indeed the PCs hang on, then of course, as the opposition with a PC stronghold, that says a lot for them. The NDP, who really, you know, this might not sound like it makes a lot of sense, but it does for me. I think probably the most pressure will be at the NDP. They make pretty good inroads when, you know, Mr. Din is a pretty popular leader. I think some of the way they talk about some of the social issues of the day resonates in many corners, but they've never really been able to translate that to seat count. I think the high water mark for the NDP in this province has ever at one point been five, five seats. So if Kimberly Churchill can pull off an upset in Conception Bay, East Bell Island, that will be an interesting result. You know, you can talk about notoriety or the name recognition, which absolutely plays a role. You know, generally the incumbents and the incumbent party are best positioned to win. But on this front, I mean, certainly Tina Neri must be pretty well known down in the Portugal Cove St. Phillips region. Certainly Kimberly Churchill would be pretty well known in not only that voting district, but other parts of the province, given her advocacy with her husband Todd regarding the education or the lack thereof for their son Carter. And then, of course, Fred Hutton brings massive name recognition. You know, 30 years in media, of which he worked at, of course, NTV for the longest time. He worked here at VOCM. He worked at CBC. He's been the senior advisor to the premier uh, since 2019, maybe, since 2019 or somewhere thereabouts. So he brings upon the big name recognition, but that would be a provincial matter. So how do you boil that down to how it translates into one voting district, which is pretty expansive? If you look at the footprint geographically of Conception Bay, East Bell Island, it brings in a lot of different territory. So one of the conversations, the questions that we had from Mr. Hutton was, you know, some of the on-the-ground decisions that impact people where they live. Paradise is part of that voting district. One of the major concerns coming out of Paradise is, of course, the decision and the announcement to build a high school in Portugal Cove St. Phillips versus where all the data led was to Paradise. I mean, the numbers are clear. Annually, given the uh, infrastructure demands and the evaluation uh, of student enrollment, student numbers, Paradise was obviously the choice for the next community to get a next, the next high school. And that didn't happen. So that one has been called a political decision, no more, no less. Even though I don't think the Premier's children are in the public system, I believe they go to St. Bonds, if I'm not mistaken, and that's either here nor there. <clears throat> so we'll see how all of those types of things lead into how people are willing and wanting to strike the wrecks. Let's get a check on the Twitter before we get to the news break. Uh, here's Aaron. He says, try the municipal government. No more internal combustion vehicles, internal combustion engine vehicles by 2035. But the city isn't requiring that new homes, condos, apartments provide rough ins for home chargers. Yeah. Is that their responsibility to demand or require? Or would that be people's individual decision-making if you're going to build a new home 
then maybe you want to rough in the opportunity for home charger. I guess his point is well taken regarding condos and apartments because if the developer doesn't see the upside financially for their company, then they probably won't. So that's an interesting point being made by Aaron. All right, we're taking your emails. It's Opalon at VOCM.com. Let's take a break for the news. A quick update on Team Canada playing Czechia in the quarterfinals at the World Juniors. After one period, I'm not sure if they started the second period yet, but after one, we're down two, 2-0. Two Keep an eye on that. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Okay, let's go to line number one. Colin, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you as well. I want to talk about... um the federal penitentiary system and lack of one in this province and also the ongoing saga to build a provincial uh, uh, facility here to replace HMP. And there seems to be a lack of uh, a political will to, to uh, even consider a federal penitentiary from the federal government. Um, we're one of only two provinces in the country that doesn't have a federal penitentiary. Even though we do house federal federal prisoners. Well, that's, that is absolutely correct, and the criminal justice system and the criminal law in this country is uh, constitutionally vested exclusively in, in the federal government. So when we do prosecutions here, criminal code prosecutions in the province, um, we have uh, the provincial Department of Justice and provincial prosecutors. We're doing that on behalf of the federal government. But, um, you know, in, in March now, uh, coming up, in March uh, 31st, will be the 75th anniversary of Newfoundland and Labrador Joining Confederation. And yet, uh, we don't have a federal penitentiary here. You know, we're going to celebrate uh, joining the Canadian uh, family, but we don't have a federal penitentiary. And with that, we don't have any federal programs or anything that would come with that. You know, ancillary uh, and secondary um, programs that would help federal inmates who are serving time in federal penitentiary in this province, because we don't have one. Uh, the, the provincial government... Uh, they're still throwing around delays upon delays uh, to, to, to even uh, try to get a, uh, a finalized project off the ground and get shovels in the ground to, to build a, uh, a provincial institution here. I just find it absolutely uh, astonishing that uh, this doesn't get done. Over the Christmas holidays, I read an article in, uh, I think it was CBC Online here, CBC Newfoundland, that uh, the federal government is committed to replacing the Canada Revenue Agency building on Freshwater Road. Uh, that building, apparently, according to the federal government, has outlived its uh, usefulness now. It was built in 1980, so the building is not even 50 years old, and uh, apparently that's outdated. And the federal government has determined that we need a new one here. So they uh, purchased the land up off uh, Kelsey Drive, and they've awarded a contract to an architectural firm out of Toronto, I believe, for $9 million to do the site planning. Yep. You know, just, uh, yeah, we got the money for that. And this is a building, to me, it looks like it's perfectly fine when I drive by there on Freshwater Road. You know, it's kept in good shape and because uh, it's a federal government property. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, it was built in 1980. So the federal government says, well, that's outdated now. So we need a brand new building that's going to comply with, uh, you know, the latest green technology and, and all this sort of stuff. And I understand that. But, the, you know, to me... The procurement for that project, no problem. Uh, we need a new building. Let's identify a site uh, within Metropolitan St. John's, or in this case, up on Kelsey Drive, 
here's a $9 million contract to an architectural firm out of Toronto, and it's going to be shoveled in the ground, and that building is going to be constructed and occupied by 2028, 2029. Why can't they do that for a federal penitentiary here, and why can't that be done for a provincial institution at the, at the provincial level? Don't know. I don't even know what the conversation has ever sounded like between the province and the federal government. I know there was negotiations about the amount of money paid per federal inmate, and that was increased. But I don't know if there's ever been, and it's not the appropriate way to put it, cap in hand or to explore, like comprehensively explore the possibility for a federal penitentiary. I don't know. But you can Google up comments coming from successive provincial governments about replacing Her Majesty's Penitentiary. And I guarantee you, in short order, you can find one talking about an announcement made over a decade ago. And where are we? Nowhere. Yeah. Absolutely. The wheels just keep spinning, right? Yeah, we've had the conversation about the White Hills, and then there was plans to build one out in Harbor Grace, and then it came back to the White Hills. And, you know, inside of this year's budget, minimal amount of money, I think $7 million to further explore engineering and design. There's some 30% of work done on a design, but apparently it didn't hit government's affordability window because they were talking about $200 million, maybe could afford as much as $325 million. Now we're somewhere around at least a half a billion dollars. So I would imagine that throws a little cold water on it not to say that that should be the be all and end all but guarantee you that's where the stall is oh absolutely and you know at the same time you hear the uh, that was minister rabbit said that that uh, we had to be fiscally responsible for the taxpayers of the province uh, paraphrasing him now but at the same time uh, his boss the premier is talking about developing gull island you know is there going to be any taxpayer money put into that project if it's if it uh, comes to fruition probably Likely. Now, he does say, and I'm not sure exactly what he means by this, but Gull Island will look different than the Upper Churchill and Muskrat Falls, but of course, they're two vastly different projects as well, so I have no idea. But this sometime this year, we're going to get a better idea. There's been work being done very quietly on Gull Island for decades. Now, not extensive shovel-in-the-groundwork, but evaluations of potential and partners, and that's going to have some involvement with Hydro-Quebec, whether we like it or not. That's going to be part and parcel of it. I would imagine it's a major component included in the 2041 discussions. You know, whether it be redress back to 49 or what the next 17 years looks like or 16 years looks like. But absolutely, Gaul has got to be somewhere in that conversation. Yeah, it all comes down to government procurement um, uh, frameworks or paradigms for whatever project you're talking about. Gaul Island, the Premier's all bullish on that, and I understand that. You know, the federal government... New uh, Canada Revenue Agency building up on Kelsey Drive, no problem, done. It's all about priorities too, right? Absolutely. You know, it's all about priority. We don't have a federal penitentiary here. We're not replacing a federal penitentiary that that's outlived its purpose. It's not like the CRA building on on Freshwater Road, and we need a new one. We never had one <laughs> in the first instance, right? So right. you can't replace what never existed in the first place. Um, we should have a federal penitentiary here. 21st century uh, facility with a, with a remand center with uh, 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 and all the accompanying um, uh, programs that go with that. Uh, are people just waiting to go to trial? People who have never been convicted of anything. They have to be segregated from from populations of of uh, inmates who have been convicted. You know, we don't have that. Something to replace the um, the Supreme Court building and and the uh, the lock the city lock up there in that in the basement of that building. So this is this is something that has to be approached from a from a multifaceted uh, aspect, I think, and and it has to, you have to take a global approach to to uh, 
incarceration in this province of, of inmates, people who have been convicted of crimes, and people who are just waiting to go to trial or have some other interlocutory matter before the courts on their way to going to trial or a bail hearing or something else, you know? Well, I some some 60% of the population, prison population at HMP is on remand, which is a staggering number. Yeah, and, you know, when we go to build, you know, it's not that long ago when inmates who, or pardon me, those convicted who knew they needed some help, whether it be with uh, drug addiction or whatever the case may be, asking the court for a federal sentence. I mean... That's just remarkable to me. You know, actually saying I want to be sentenced to more time so I can go to the mainland and possibly, just possibly, avail of some programs and services to deal with the issues that led me to be convicted of the crime in the first place, or actually contributed at least. Yeah, that's absolutely shameful that, that, that people are put in that position to even have to request that, uh, to a sentencing judge in a, at a sentencing hearing, right? That's absolutely astounding. We, we just spent $15 billion on a hydroelectric project in Labrador and that's still having problems with um, with these fasteners on towers and the, and, the, and the you know turbines not working properly and things like that they're out of sync and that's going to cost millions and millions of more dollars to, to fix that and to rectify that. I think some of the insurance will cover some of the issues with the turbines, if I remember Miss Williams' comments correctly. With the fasteners to keep the ropes from gallop, the wires from galloping, that's like a $16 million price tag. It's just a nuisance at this point, but that's not a huge amount of money. But you're not wrong. I mean, we've got one turbine that's absolutely in trouble, and the potential for a second to be in big trouble. Add that to the concerns out at Holyrood, where there's only one uh, generating unit operating that's at less than half capacity so you know we're told no worries about the winter but yet there was a seven hour extended uh, outage uh, I think on the 23rd of December that's being downplayed as well but you know it doesn't bode well for the continued cold we're just lucky it's not windy with cold you know we've had very still cold days it's the wind that really gets us uh, for demand on the grid Uh, Colin I appreciate the time anything else before we say goodbye no, it's just, uh, you know, there seems to be money for, for like you said, for the, to fix those problems with the uh, Labrador Island Link or, or with the, any other problems with Muskrat. Uh, it's got to be done. Here's the money. Here's the blank check. It's got to be fixed. Uh, CRA wants a new building up on Kelsey Drive. Here's the money for the architectural uh, plan, $9 million. It's going to be shovels in the ground. It's going to be built by 2028 or 2029. Why don't we have that same attitude towards a federal penitentiary, remand center, and a provincial uh, penitentiary or a provincial institution here? It's all about political will. Some things are deemed to be uh, curry favor with the voters. Some, some things are not, apparently. Obviously. I appreciate the time. Thanks, Colin. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, final break of the morning. Rob, you stay right there to talk about the roads and plowing out in the community of Conception Bay South. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. I'm still getting used to that bumper there. Let's go to line number two. Rob, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and Happy New Year to you, boys. Happy New Year to you as well. Um, yeah, I just want to I want to give a thumbs down to VOCM for the Christmas because they played too much Christmas music for the whole month. That, that That's just too much. <laughs> but uh, that's not why I called anyways. Um, anyways, the, uh, the roads out here in CBS... Um, I was going to work there on Saturday, and it was a slushy morning, just wet snow and everything like that. And the plow was going along the road with his wing down and not touching a little bit of anything because the roads are so engraved and stuff like that. He wasn't doing anything and laying salt down in a soaking wet water, which does nothing, no good whatsoever. The next day, 
I'm going back to work out. I, I, I go to work out in Harbour, Maine. So I'm taking CBS Highway. And um, it was icy and everything like that and not a salt truck around or anything like that. Um, I just don't understand the, the thinking of the, the municipalities. They, they just don't have a clue. I think the operators are doing what they're told and doing the best they can. My question would be about how those operations are managed. Like, for instance, here in the city. So I take my plow from the depot on Black Marsh Road, and I'm plowing down Pleasantville. And then, you know, wherever my area is, and it's not around Black Marsh Road. And then the shift change comes around, and I drive the plow all the way back to Black Marsh Road, traveling over roads that have snow on it, but I don't have the wing down, don't have the plow down, or I've got the plow down just creating sparks on the road, as opposed to the next plow operator gets a spin-out in a pickup truck, the operator hops out, gets in the pickup, and drives back versus driving that big piece of heavy equipment right back across the city to Black Marsh Road. So there's a couple of those things, and maybe I'm just missing an important component here, but I've never understood driving on the snowy road without putting the plow down because it's not your route, or driving around with the plow down and no snow down. Like, I don't get both of those yeah i get that but like you know the the, the government put forward uh, this year that what was it 219 million dollars or something to re- redo the roads and stuff like that and nothing nothing at all got done out around this way um the plows plows down all they're plowing is pavement chunks where there's already potholes and so that's why there's so much maintenance on the machines because all they're doing is plowing pavement you know chunks of pavement coming out all over the place it's it's just ridiculous the way the uh the municipalities are doing things now i don't know if they have the resources or what like that the government's not giving enough money to to read but the highways out here the cbs highway you know which you know hundreds of thousands of people use every day well, I shouldn't say hundreds, of tens of thousands, but um, you know, it's they're just destroying the road even more and wasting salt on a you know a, a warm day where it's just all water, putting salt down. It it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I know it's not going to be a perfect science, but people have legitimate questions about road work, snow clearing, ice management, and I get it. And uh, I can accept your thumbs down on behalf of the station regarding Christmas music. Uh, some people love it, some people don't. Does it? Yeah, no, yeah, I, yeah. I'm a bad. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a Grinch type guy. So I just, you know, that that was too long. You know, a couple days before Christmas, good enough. You know, a couple days after, maybe. You know. But, yeah, a whole month, yeah, no, that's too much. I appreciate the time, Rob. Thanks for the call. Okay, then, Patty. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Uh, yes, uh, calling in about the uh, pickup in Carbonell. Okay, the uh, what pickup? Garbage? Yeah. Okay. Um, so our garbage is supposed to be picked up uh, not past Thursday, but the Thursday before and uh the um the garbage wasn't the garbage wasn't picked up and since that time uh we're after seeing uh that uh, the um you still there just listening uh we're after seeing that uh the garbage is some of the garbage was picked up in carbonier and it's being stockpiled in fresh water uh in a parking lot 
So bags of garbage being taken there and pile up in in a pile. You know, in a, in in a today's environmental world, where we're thinking that you know uh, things are supposed to be done by the environment. Uh, not only that, it, it, you know, attracts rodents, uh, whether it be mice or rats, uh, and not only in that parking lot, but in your own garbage box around your property and stuff like that. So does garbage so collected in Carbonair land in Robin Hood Bay? Or where does uh, it go? It, 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 it's brought to Robin Hood Bay as far as I know, yes. Okay. And um, from what I can gather from only going by rumors what people are saying on uh, on social media is that they have equipment problems. So what has happened since this uh, Eastern Range management has taken over uh, and the old contractor was out, they haven't been showing up for the garbage on a regular basis. Uh, so, like, if your garbage was right, uh, to be picked up on Tuesday or Thursday, they don't show up until the next week or sometimes a week and a half later. Uh, and it's, it's, it's becoming a, a common and frequent problem. It's not only with Christmas, it's all year long. And um, they reduced the bag limit from, uh, I think it was, uh, eight bags of garbage in the area to six and now they're um, you know uh, uh, from what they would collect before now they're redu- reducing down to uh, to things I know that's happened because of the environment and stuff like that but different areas have uh, different uh, you know different contractors and what they pick up and whatnot. but the biggest concern is they're not showing up for the garbage at all and so you said it's an equipment issue. You mean the people picking up the garbage have an equipment issue? Obviously, that's East, what you meant. East, since, since Eastern Waste Management took over a few years ago, it's been nothing but a torment. Uh, I've had to personally come to St. John's, take my own personal garbage out of the box uh, because they were going on the second week of not being picked up. Uh, so when I was going to St. John's, I took my garbage that's been in there for almost two weeks and uh, thrown it in the vehicle, brought it to Robin Hood Bay Dump uh, just to get rid of it. And we're paying tax money, you know, to to the town for that contractor to pick it up. You know, they're paying the contractor out of the tax money to collect for, from us. And it's not working. Uh, Freshwater had to get rid of them because they were doing the same thing to them. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm thinking that either town, you know, uh, pick up his feet and, and make a decision on whether they're going to keep contractor that's not even actually showing up to pick the garbage up or get rid of them and, and uh, uh, you know, put it out for tenders or allow the old contractor who was picking up the garbage and was on time and, and, and making sure that, you know, like I say, you can't leave garbage lying around for in a garbage box. Some... Uh, garbage containers out there like you know garbage uh, wooden garbage box uh people have their garbage piled on top of it probably you know because christmas is extra bags and uh piled on top of it which is going to create a a, a rodent problem and, and an environmental problem and uh stockpiling it in fresh water is not fixing the problem doesn't sound like it. Uh, I appreciate the concern and the comments. So you're telling me that there's a private contractor that got a contract from Eastern Waste Management, and that contractor has changed recently from someone who was reliable to this group. No, Eastern Waste Management, who, who is the contractor. They are the contractor. Okay, so we can 
we can get a comment from them. That should be no problem yeah. at all. I appreciate the time this morning, Rob. Uh, caller, pardon and, uh, me. Fresh, fresh, Freshwater car, uh, uh, has a uh, site there, and they got the uh, picture there posted of the, the garbage stockpile in the parking lot uh, in uh, – uh, trailers, piled up in trailers and uh, containers uh, full of garbage. We'll do the follow-up. Don't get me going on the rodent population. Man, oh man. Not too far from where I live when we had that little light dusting of snow the other night. The, yeah. the Right along the trail where I was walking, you could see quite clearly there was a couple of rat buddies that were walking side by side because you could see the trail that their tail left. Yeah, and they and they you know they get so big then they they start knocking on your door and ask for a cigarette. <laughs> I appreciate the time. Thanks for the call. Have a good have a good day. You bye. too. Bye bye. All right, we're out of time. Just for clarification, the CBS Highway is of course provincial jurisdiction, not under the authority or responsibility of the town of CBS. All right, good show to kick off the year. I was going to say the week, but the week and the year, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Bigland FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer David Williams, I'm your host Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye bye.